Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Uh, my guest today is back for a second time on this podcast. He's the author of Germanicus and Marcus Agrippa. The first one we've been talking about in the first episode of this return, I believe it was episode 50, early 50s, late 50s or 60s, episode 60 something. And yes, you should absolutely look it up. And today we're going to talk about the latter episode book, Agrippa. And Augustus' right hand man. And he's rather an, un- while he's in other biographies on Augustus, which is tremendous, quite a lot. Biographies, there is he's not very much in many of them, is he? He's not just briefly mentioned, and then he's out of the story. So, what what's compelling about writing a book about that written by to you? Well, first, Ellen, thank you for welcoming me back. It's a great pleasure. I I, I think you are uh, a good student of history, and I, oh, I love talking you. because you do your research and uh, you know you 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 ask great questions. Um, I think your question was kind of what appealed to me about this man. Um. So I chanced upon the story of Agrippa, really. I mean, he was always in Roman history, right? And I had mm. written a book about Nero Claudius Drusus, who was a contemporary of Marcus Agrippa, um, and he dies after Agrippa. And I became aware, if you look at the tr- family tree of the House of Augustus, it's got, it's got 30, 40 people in it. It's, it's, it's a very elaborate array of people, many of whom mm. are just married into the family or adopted. It's a very mm. complicated... And you keep seeing the name of Ripper. He's married to this person, connected with this one. And you think, what the heck is going on here? Um, I'd written um, about neurologists. Then I wrote about Germanicus. And, of course, Germanicus is actually married to a relation of Agrippa. So there's an obvious connection there. And I was really shocked to find out that when I wanted to ask some fundamental questions of who is this man, Marcus Agrippa, uh, there were no books. There was no biography in English. There is one in French. Uh, and I, th- I think there's now an out-of-print one in German, but the point is there was nothing in English. There hadn't been anything in English since the 1930s. So we're talking about before the Second World War. And I thought, my opportunity is there. I'm going to tell the story of this increasingly, as I found out, really great individual, um, without whom the whole story of Augustus, and in fact the early Roman Empire, can't be explained. He's, he's a crucial element um, and, and, and it's extraordinary. The fundamental mystery, which in event I was trying to understand, was how somebody who uh, had that impact, first of all, could be so, in a sense, forgotten. Um, and, and that's a story. And then the other thing was uh, why he did things like he did. Like, for example, he was uh, married to Augustus's daughter, only daughter. He had children by her. He gives up his sons, Caius and Lucas, for adoption by Augustus while he's still alive. I mean, what's going on there, I'm asking. And, and, and the more I peeled away the, the layers of questioning, mm. I find an intensely interesting individual, a man dedicated to service, 
and to his best friend. It, it's ultimately it's a buddy film. It's a buddy movie. It's a buddy book. Mm. Um, and and those I find absolutely enthralling because it's about relationships between two people, and and one has decided in that relationship that um, you're the one destined destined for greatness. And I'm going to be with you on the journey, and I'm actually going to help you. So, in effect, I will benefit from being a, a good friend to you. Mm. And that the, the result is one of the most transformative relationships in Roman history. And yet, he's sort of kind of a subtext. He's dropped out, and that's actually partly by design. Agrippa didn't kind of really want to be mm. the showy personality, because to do that would have been to outshine his best friend. So it's, it's ultimately also a story about somebody who is humble, um, achieves great things. And in fact, even the Romans described him as actually coming from humble birth and yet understood. He didn't kind of outshine him in, by getting, becoming in this book, though. So, <laughs> Yeah. So, so all of that appealed to me greatly. And, and I embarked on writing the story in the uh, early 20, I guess, middle decade. And we finally got, and I got Stephen Saylor, bless him, um, a friend of mine, the famous novelist uh, who writes uh, Roman crime novels uh, about a, a Roman detective set in the first century BC at the time of Julius Caesar. Uh, he wrote the foreword to it, which was which is really special. So I was really lucky to have him write the, the, the foreword. And, and if anybody is trying to understand who is the man we're talking about, if I say go to the HBO series and Alan Leach plays the role of young Agrippa. He plays it brilliantly. He kind of looks like Agrippa. It's extraordinary. And actually, um, Alan Leach goes on to play a major role as the driver in Downton Abbey. So if, if, if anybody's trying to work out who this guy is, we're talking HBO, Marcus Agrippa played by Alan Leach. Um, he's also played in a couple of movies. He also stars in a Shakespeare's uh, Cleopatra. But um, Yeah, yeah it, I was going to say that. It's, it, it, in, in the introduction of your book, the, the guy who writes the introduction for you he's mentioned that it's it doesn't seem to be portrayed very quite well in in, in the book you say in movie sorry movie um I, I just i actually funny enough i wrote the foreword uh to a book written by greg aldrett illustrated by graham sumner about his hollywood epics depicting the roman world and i wrote a, a forward i was very honored to do that and i tried to point out that the thing about the hollywood movie industry first of all it's a for-profit industry and it's trying to produce sort of ninety-minute stories that people will pay at the box office to go and see. So what they, by definition, are doing is making a series of compromises. You know, you're collapsing ten years of history into ninety minutes, and you have to shuffle the deck to, to make sure it makes sense within the confines of that art. And the trouble is, is that Marcus Agrippa is usually a side character because, by definition, the main characters are Antony, Cleopatra, and Octavian, or Julius Caesar. But if you look closely, he's he's there. And I think this is why I say I pay some tribute to HBO because not only is he there, but I think he's quite accurately portrayed. Um, he comes over as being a thoughtful, extremely loyal friend. Um, he he kind of the the modern world. He kind of seems like a bit of a simp. I don't remember who, but he does seem to be. He, he falls in love with someone in the series. I don't remember the name. I, I, the I, yeah, I don't remember whether I can't remember. It's so long since I saw that. I don't remember whether it's actually his. His own uh, daughter, he's fallen in love because mm. I don't think he has his daughter by the age uh, Augustus isn't old enough. Um, but, uh, you know, let's put it on the table. I mean, Marcus Agrippa is a straight guy, right? He, he, mm. he marries many times. He has mm. lots of children. And interestingly enough, whereas a lot of Romans get a bad rap for infidelity and all sorts of other unmentionable kind of things they might do, 
None of those are leveled against Marcos Agrippa. He is a straight-up guy. He is a moral guy. Um, and his his marriages, I think he basically has four. I'll have to check that again. Um, and ultimately, ma- marrying Augustus' daughter are political marriages, by and large. And uh, what, what's fascinating is that that gives you a hint into marriage in the Roman world amongst the upper echelons of Roman society is not really for love. It is for practical purposes, is to link families. So, in fact... His first marriage, which was to uh, Caecilia Attica, was um, Octavian's niece. So he, he's brought into the family. And then he divorces her to actually marry uh, Claudia Marcella Maior, who in fact is related to Atticus, who's the famous guy that Cicero writes to. And what's fascinating is you learn that actually Marcus Agrippa is a very sentimental man. Uh, he wears his emotions on his sleeve, although, of course, Roman tunics don't have sleeves, but you know what I mean. Um, that The point is that you, you, when you read about anecdotally all the different things, he's a man that will cry and he gets angry and he shows his emotions about things. And, and you know what? I like people who are like that. I mean, they're, they're, they're three-dimensional. Yeah. So, in fact, when, when Atticus dies, he's bereft. He actually loves his father-in-law. And um, anyway, so that then ends, and he's he's told by uh, Augustus to marry his daughter because now he's basically saying, "You are my son-in-law." So he goes from being their like best buddy all the way to being his son-in-law, and then even hands his kids over for adoption. That's an extraordinary thing, hmm. really extraordinary. Yeah, and uh, like that's beginning with the early childhood, and like so many characters, we talked about Charlemagne a few weeks ago, and I, uh, like I'm going to compare kind of to. With him, because as with Charlemagne and with Agrippa, we don't really know his childhood that well. And as he write in the book as well, he doesn't seem try to seem to try to hide his childhood, even though he comes from kind of a noble family, if you call it that. Well, so 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 what my understanding is, I mean, so we one of the words that we see actually written uh, is is humble, right? And and, and mm. it, an English speaker would understand humble as being sort of poor and you know, not terribly high status in the sense of looked up to. But I think in the way this is, it, it just means that his, he didn't have great people in his family, right? And 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 um, this was important in Roman society. In order to be able to come with prestige, it really paid to have a consul or a praetor or an edile or something, at least one or two generations back in your family, because that made you very special. Uh, this man, Agrippa, seems not to have had any of that. Um, so he's he's come from a, a plebeian clan, an obscure, the Bipsania clan. So, they, you know, not very well, terribly well known. The second thing we know from Pliny the Elder is that he has what's called a misera uenta, which can be translated either misfortunes of youth or an unhappy youth. So that's all we get to learn about his childhood. And you think that what, what's intriguing about this for, for people watching and listening is the context. He's born in 63. So he's living during that interesting era. So it's 63 Cicero's the consul, and there's already struggles about power grabs. There's the famous trial of Mm. Cicero and uh, Catalina, right, which which is really a sort of revolution. famous speech, of course. Yes, exactly. So so he's born into this world of strife. Mm. And during that world, um, actually, then we start to see the rise of Julius Caesar over the next uh, 50 so years, ending in 44 BC, as you know. It must be um, an exciting so, time to be alive in the, in the Roman times during those times. Though. Well, I'm going to use the word dangerous rather than exciting. Mm. Um, if, you, if you make the wrong friends, you might actually find that uh, you have to be on the run. 
And in fact, by the time you get to the, 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 the assassination of Julius Caesar, of course, best friend's buddy with uh, Octavius, who is now the adopted heir of Julius Caesar, that, that who is, that's who the man, uh, uh, Agrippa, happens to have the good fortune to know. And the result mm. is the decisions he makes about what he will do with this heir of the, of, of the name of Julius Caesar um, is, the, is, is the journey they go on. That's the story of the man. But I wanted to, to highlight to people that he's born into an era which is dangerous. It's not clear where things are going. Powerful interests like Julius Caesar and Pompey the Great and Crassus and all these famous names that we know, the Roman Republic is changing. Mm. Uh, it's, it's becoming a place where money is injected in large amounts. Powerful mm. men are sort of like moving their own army. Right, so that so the world through Hannibal was a sort of like a city militia going to going to war and coming back home after after the wars fought. No, these are these are semi professional armies paid for by Caesar, paid for by Pompey, and um, into this world Agrippa is born, humble beginning. It's quite possible there were family difficulties. We only know that his father, we only know his father's name is Lucius. Why? Because on the Pantheon in Rome. Is the famous name Marcus Agrippa, yeah. Lucifelius Tertius Consul. So, in basically, he, he tells you that Marcus Agrippa is the son of Lucius. I understand he had a brother called Lucius, and he had a sister called Sania Paula, and that's the all. That's all we know about his family. It, it's 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 tragic, but I also we don't, we don't know much about his father, about what he did. No, at all. No, and 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 I think that's again. I come back to this basic idea. I think that's by design. And what's intriguing is his full name is Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa, but he drops the name Vipsanius. He, he, he uses it not himself. And in fact, there was a joke uh, by one of the um, teams. He, so Marcus Agrippa is actually in a prosecution um, representing somebody and the defense team is arguing. One of the jokes is they say, and who is this Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa? Is this another man? Or, you know, and, and the point is that there's some insinuation that either Marcus Agrippa is ashamed of the family Vipsanian, or it has some sort of baggage around it and he just doesn't want to be associated with it. Or he's, he's just aware there's a more powerful brand in saying simply, I am Marcus Agrippa. Mm. And it's significant to me that the name on the Pantheon does not have Whipsonius in it. It is simple, straightforward Marcus Agrippa. Incidentally, um, the building, the Pantheon, of which his, his name actually is, that's, that's Hadrian's Pantheon. Mm. And what's really fascinating is that when, when Hadrian would rebuild buildings, because the actual building that um, Marcus Agrippa had built back in the 30s BC, and Hadrian has to rebuild it in like the hundreds AD, it had gone, it had been burned several times, it had been partially rebuilt, it had gone through all different kind of but guess what he did? He put the original builder's name on the pediment. And it, it's always must have had some kind of respect for the man, though. That's exactly right. So I think that there is a, a both as a builder, right, but also as a, a general and, a, and as a Roman statesman. And I think what that tells you is as time went on, there was a there was there must have been a growing respect for this man. And in fact, the area that the Pantheon sits was originally open parkland. So now it's crowded with buildings. And at the time of Hadrian, it was crowded with buildings. When, when Agrippa and what, who became Octavian became Augustus, hmm. they went on this massive building program. And one of the things that uh, Augustus builds is mausoleum. And there's a line of sight from the Pantheon that goes all the way. It's about half a mile or so to the hmm. mausoleum. And the space in between was filled with parks and fountains and a lake. Yeah. 
and a big, huge square uh, colonnaded space for people to vote in. Um, the counting, the voting counting room had the widest ceiling expanse of any known building. In fact, Pliny the Elder makes the point. I actually wrote some of these things down so you can actually see. Um, let's have a look here. Uh, he says Pliny the Elder, natural history. In our own time too, so that's late first century, in the porticos of the scepter, there is a log which has been left there by Marcus Agrippa as being equally of an object of curiosity, having been found too large to be used in the building of the vote office there. It was 20 foot shorter than the one previously mentioned and a foot and a half wide in thickness. There is a megalomaniac character to Marcus Agrippa. He builds the biggest things possible and will keep building even bigger ones. And we'll um, get that back to his buildings later, of course, because yeah, it's okay. fascinating. So, so what I wanted to well, highlight yeah. to people... What I wanted to highlight to people is that this guy ha- has all these facets, and it and it's it's a wonderful man to write a story about. Yeah, and uh, I believe that I was going to say something, but I've, I kind of forgot it to be honest. But <laughs> let's 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 talk about his coming to Rome. What what does he do? How does he enter the Roman city of Rome? What what is what is the goal there? How how does he end well, up we... meeting Caesar and then you know on the t- side of Caesar? So he's born in 63, and, 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 and sometime in the next 10 years, it seems to be he makes a journey to Rome, and that's probably where he's educated. Where he came from, we have no idea. Um, some people think he came from Puglia, some people think he came from Latium somewhere, but it, but it doesn't appear that it was Rome. So, so coming to Rome was like the family sending their humble son um, off to probably get an education, and Roman education was, was not like a modern European education at all. It was... Uh, if you found yourself a, 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 a tutor who was probably a Greek slave or something, and the classes were held in the forum, you know, in a, wherever you could find some space and put some chairs, and the guy would start teaching you about Homer's Iliad and would teach you about, uh, you know, mathematics and things from the texts that they were studying, and you'd learn to speak uh, oratorically, rhetorically, you'd learn the arts of persuasion and these sorts of things. Um, and somewhere in this journey in Rome, he he encounters a young man called um, uh, Octavius Turinus and uh, Caius Octavius Turinus is, is the man that we now know as Octavian and this this is a, another man who hasn't got a terribly at that point high profile he's a little bit obscure but what's what where things transform is that Julius Caesar uh, sees in Octavian someone with great potential and he starts to point and push his nephew grandnephew in uh the direction of getting him a skill set so he sort of pushes him a little bit into uh, public roles to hey um, why do you take charge of uh putting on some public play productions which means you have to organize uh, the the acting troupe and get the money together and book the and just do the whole thing right so, so he makes some boo-boos on that one and learns some crucial lessons and then caesar goes out to fight in spain uh, and in fact, there's an issue, he's issued a command, Octavian, you need to join me here in, in Spain. And it takes so gosh, so long <laughs> for him to get there. The war is pretty much over. There is, an, from what I remember, there's a reference to Oct- uh, Agrippa going separately. We don't know whether he arrived after or before Octavian. He may have fought at the Battle of Munda, we don't know, but he would have been, he would have been a teenager, teenager at the time. So the point is, by the time these two young lads get there the war's been won and caesar's all kind of like chuckling or well, what took you so long you know i mean <laughs> i finished the war in the time it, it took you to get here 
And mm. then what Caesar then decides to do, he has ambitions to go towards uh, Parthia. And it's time for Octavian to get military trained. So he sends him off to Illyricum, to Apollonia. And at Apollonia, he'll be trained by members of the local legion, which is one of the Macedonian legions. And they send cavalry in. Therefore, you know, the, what happens is, is Octavian learns rudimentary arts of war, if you like, to, to fight and to understand how the Roman army works. And Agrippa is there. He's his he's best friend, right? And we, that there's, uh, there's, there are all sorts of interesting stories of how they're both living together in Apollonia. And one of the stories is how they go and see an astrologer. And uh, they kind of, you can imagine kids who are in their middle teens go, oh, go on, go and ask the astrologer. Ask him to read your future. Go do a horoscope. Yeah. Oh, okay. So Agrippa basically has his horoscope read and it sort of says, you know, you're going to be you, you're destined for great things. And then when it turns out that... I'm uh, sure that's what you said to every, everyone, right? Yeah, that's exactly. Well, there he's kind of private inside knowledge, really, because Roman understood that, or not understood, but that, that they believed that there were uh, sort of destinies that you could interpret in the stars. And as mm. Roman emperors became more and more paranoid about this sort of thing, I mean, but they, they tried to shut down insights into this because they thought that you would have insights into their life that you shouldn't know yet. And then Octavian is basically, uh, as I recall the story, this man reads the thing and, and, and this man doing the horoscope basically claps on his knees and said, you know, you're really, really, really destined for greatness. So it's, it's clear from the outset that uh, Agrippa has associated himself with somebody who is not normal in the, in the sense of uh, just an ordinary Roman, that there's something special about where he's going to go. And then what happens is, and we're talking around about the summer of 44 BC, uh, no, no, actually the early part of 44 BC, um, so Caesar is supposed to be gathering his armies ready to actually go on an eastwards campaign. And then in March of 44 BC, um, a missive, a letter comes from basically his mother. This is a great, Octavian gets a letter from his mother saying, um, Caesar, your great uncle has been assassinated. Do not come to Rome. Do not come. And apparently his, uh, his stepfather, who's actually um, got a slightly different opinion, ah, you know, come, you'll be, you'll be okay. So what happens is at this point, and it's an interesting thing. So Octavian has a group of his friends with him. So his Marcus Agrippa's there. Another guy called Sabidianus. Another guy, I think his name is Lucius. We don't know the rest of his name. But what that tells us is that at a very young age, this man that we, who will become Augustus relies on the advice of friends. He likes mm. to be able to bounce ideas off first before committing himself. And it seems to be that he's inclined to go to Italy. Bearing in mind, the whole system is in chaos now. I mean, at this point, since February, Julius Caesar had been declared dictator. Mm. And uh, there were all sorts of assumptions that go with that, that, you know, he had absolute power, he could do it. And now he's removed. And you've got Brutus and Cassius, basically, and the liberators, as they would thought themselves, running amok, trying to uh, do what they want to do to restore what they think is the Republic. And uh, they think they've got it all wrapped up. Well, of course, Marcus Antonius is himself uh, trying to pull things together as he thinks he's the natural heir to Julius Caesar. And he thinks he is, but of course, he's got the will and he knows actually that's not how things are. So he tries to suppress the will. So it turns out that Agrippa, for what we have in our sources, recommends to his best friend at that point, you should follow your mother's advice and stay here. But he doesn't. He says, actually, no, I'm actually going to go to Italy. And Agrippa basically says, okay, if that's what you want to do, I'll come with you. So they cross over and they eventually end up by spending some time with Cicero. Uh, and Cicero briefs them on, the, on what's happening and then lets him know that actually, you may not know this, but actually you are the heir 
to Julius Caesar, which means you will get a lot of money and you'll get his name. That's the crucial thing. You get to use his name. And at this point, then, um, Octavian and his friend embark on what will be their life destiny. Mm. And um, knowing what he's entitled to, he pretty much presents himself, Octavian presents himself to Mark Antony and said, I, I need you to read the will out and I, I need the money. And Antony basically... They will become enemies later, right? But the, how? But they are, are allies from now? Does, does Mark... How does, what is, is the tension between them already? Yes, there is. Well, I, I think there's a resentment because I think at this point, Marcus Antonius... I, I tend to use the wrong word for the English word. So Marcus Antonius is, is late 40s, 50s. Um, and Octavian is 19. He's 19. Does Marcus Antonius feel like he should be the... Yes. A representative oh, yeah. of the Respublica. Well, well, yes, because he's been them. He's been what's called the master of horse, the magister equitum. He's been basically the the loyal, you know, psychic that that the the deputy of Julius Caesar all the way through the Gallic War and elsewhere. Um, and, but he and was a rubbish was... leader, though. He, he he was rubbish. He was <laughs> terrible, wasn't he? That's another podcast. Um, a lot of people think that. A lot of other people just think he um, he was a bit misguided. Uh, you know, he had. He was a gambler and a bit of a drunkard, a playboy, uh, but apparently he was a you know a, a reasonable soldier. Whether he was a good general or not, I mean, we get to see that and act him, don't we? So, yeah. um, what, what's intriguing though is that he holds the cards, right? So he sort of cuts a deal with the assassins to not stir things up, and they even get to the point where they say, "Well, okay, we can we can we can reach a deal. So um, you won't be prosecuted, and you can go off and become." Uh, the governors of different provinces, in fact, some pretty choice provinces, and, and and we'll just sort of see if we can kind of move this thing along. Well, actually, what happens in young Octavian, who is now entitled to the name Julius Caesar and starts using it, by the way, he starts calling himself Caesar, yeah. and the coins that he will, he calls himself, so he, he doesn't use, he doesn't like the name Octavian. Hmm. I, I, yeah, I was reading another book about Augustus earlier this in August, and uh, Ironically, in, in August, see what they did there. And yeah. uh, he, he mentions that it would be a kind of an insult to call Caesar or Octavian, call him Octavian, the author of the book. He says that it's kind of it would be an insult to call him Octavian. But, so the, conven- the convention is this, right? Anything in, in a Roman name which has an N or Janus at the end of it means that person's been adopted. Right, mm. so Domitianus, and 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 uh, I, I'm running out of ideas um, at this point. But Octavius mm. yeah. becomes Octavianus. Um, and, mm. and because I believe was... that at the end of the writer that I was talking about, he, he does mention that Octavian kind of made fun of Caesar and, and call him Augustus, making kind of oh, sorry, not Augustus, but Octavian. Yeah. He kind of make fun of him for that for, for it. Well, so so look at the, so what's what's very telling the next two years are very important in the story because um Cicero, who is by now a sixty something guy, right? He's he's been a statesman, he was a consul, he would claim he saved the Roman Republic from Catalina uh, and, and, and a terrible coup. Um has always been a sort of conscientious uh, defender of Roman values and always saw Julius Caesar as something as a threat. But what he sees in a 19-year-old heir to Julius Caesar's fortune and, and all the other possibilities, um, he sees somebody that could be manipulated. And what's very intriguing about all of this is that when Mark Antony gambles, so you said he's a terrible general, you're right to, on this level, is that he gambles that I just have to keep this kid at arm's length and he'll just, he'll just basically get born and he'll go away. 
this is not how this young man is. This mm. man is driven and obsessive and determined and get results, almost at any cost. So having not got any satisfaction, he basically goes down and said, okay, I'm going to get myself an army. I'm going to use my name. I'm going to use the fortune I've got. I'm going to get big chests of money. Agrippa's going to come down with me, and we're going to go down to Capua, and we're going to go all the, the, the retired vet, vets, the, the veterans of the 10th Legion, and we're going to sort of say, I am the legal heir of Julius Caesar. You served Julius Caesar. Are you with me? And in fact, a lot of them say, yeah, we're with you. And they actually, they form a new legion. They actually go to Rome. And, and what becomes intimidating is the fact that because you're not supposed to raise a legion in, in Italy mm. and take it to Rome, that's actually, a, a, you know, a, a, a sort of attack on the Republic. But mm. the, the potential here is that he's able then to sort of get his way increasingly with Antonius. But Cicero says, mm. we can use this. This guy has an army. We don't have much. So they, they cut a sort of deal. And, and, and The Romans love the civil wars, don't they? Well, well, it, it's a tool to get things done. I mean, the Romans really understand it's a miserable thing when, when a Roman kills a Roman and they prefer foreign wars. They don't like domestic wars. Hmm. And actually, Augustus will use that uh, cleverly. In fact, when we talk about acting a little bit later, I'll, I'll come back to that. Yeah. But, but, but to paraphrase a, a couple of years, um, effectively, Octavian sides with Cicero and... Uh, and actually, uh, and the, uh, the assassins, I mean, it's a bizarre story, but he negotiates that he can get, I think he becomes a consul, I think, at this point. He's given a high honor on the basis that he allows his army to be used to go chase down Marcus Antonius. Hmm. And they, they they actually do a battle uh, at Mutina. And, uh, and, but Octavian, yeah. he team up with Cleopatra, who is at that point queen of Egypt, right? Yes. So... So at this point, then, really, um, it, it turns out that the, the, the guy who thought he was actually going to inherit all the wealth and the big name, in fact, is now like an enemy of the state and he's run out of town. Um, and after this battle, then, it turns out that Octavian, Antonius, and a guy called Lepidus decide, you know what? Actually, we have more in common than we have difference. Why don't we form a group of three, a triumvirate, if it's called, to restore the Roman Republic, because actually it's been usurped by a bunch of guys who were assassins. And all underpinning all of this is Augustus to be, Octavian at this time that we call him, decides that I'm out to avenge the death of Julius Caesar. These men, Brutus, Cassius, all these other people, mm-hmm. Decimus, they shouldn't be alive. We have so to someone should down. mention as well is Pompey's son, Pompey Magnus' son, Pompey, Sextus Pompeius, who as well is quite a big part of the story, right? Yes, indeed. So, so we can fast forward by saying that um, this, this group of people actually hunt down the assassins and finally at Philippi, two battles at Philippi, mm. they, they, they kill Cassius and, and Brutus. And interesting, in the meantime, Agrippa, who's the subject of this podcast, is, is, is tasked with the idea of having a public trial to find Cassius guilty of basically uh, you know, killing a Roman uh, citizen in cold blood and wins the case, of course. So that's our first attested case of his ability to be a lawyer. Uh, Romans, in, 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 as they moved through the political system, had to do advocacy in court and play defense and prosecution. And um, eventually there's the story where, where in, in Philippi, uh, the, the, the health of this young man, who by now is 23-something, 24, um, is not very terribly good. And in fact, rather than out on the battlefield, he's actually in the tent being nursed by Agrippa. Who's kind of like tending to, if you've got a fever, we'll, we'll deal with you and sort out. And this happens a couple of times, by the way. So 
So uh, uh, Octavian's health is always the sort of subject of ridicule. They use it against him frequently. Um, but again, what we find is that Gripper is always there by his side. And he's actually sent off on different missions with an army unit to go and defuse the situation. And, and he proves that he's able to do it. What's remarkable is, I mean, these guys are now in their 20s. They've had hardly any military training. I mean, they, they, they could ride a horse and they could probably throw a pilum and they could do the gladius competently. But generalship and strategy, I mean, they didn't go to any kind of military school to learn those things. Mm. They're learning it on the go. And, and it turns out that Grip is very good at this. It doesn't matter whether it's land fighting or sea fighting. He, he learns how you do it and adapts as he finds out there's techniques and methods and means. Um, so when you get to uh, basically the, the, the start of the 30s BC, they're, they're you know, pretty much in control, except that there's this other guy called Marcus Antonius who's doing things out in the east of the empire and he's got the money and backing of Queen Cleopatra. And mm. um, it's a problem because there's the risk that the Roman Empire is that it will split in two, Western and Eastern. Lepidus having been basically marginalized at this point. And then we hurtle towards a crisis because at this point uh, in uh, 32, 31, Antony and Cleopatra basically plan to invade Italy. That's, that's the insinuation. And they move a fleet and a land army to Western Greece near a little town called Actaeon, which in the Latin version is Actium. And for the next six, nine months, there's this stalemate. And what happens is, is that Octavian, who basically has no money, is trying to browbeat people into giving him cash so he can build his military resources. In the meantime, not only does Antonius have the backing of the queen, but he's actually going out stealing the wealth of the you know, Corinthians and the Greek cities, causing all sorts of grievance for those people. So he has cash already. And Octavian actually debt finances his whole campaign. So you've got to win in order to get the money to pay off his, his creditors. So um, what's interesting is that now we begin to see a different side of Agrippa where he begins to run a guerrilla war. He fights a campaign up and down the west coast of Greece, all the way down to a little town called Methoni. And what's intriguing is he begins to learn the arts of piracy and, and, and these sorts of things. And to go back to an earlier part of your story, you were quite right. We've missed that chapter out here, which is where the, um, the, the one person that stood against Octavian, all of this was Sextus Pompeius, who was the one of the sons, I think the younger son of Pompey, who actually was Julius Caesar's son-in-law at one point, and actually friend. He had actually had a, he was part of the first triumvirate. Was a very respected general and had done uh, amazing things during campaigns in the sixties uh, BC, and uh, in fact sided with the assassins. He was thought to, to be the one who would bring an army together, and tragically for him, he loses and um, is assassinated and beheaded when he reaches Egypt, when he flees to Egypt. So his son forms a resistance. And what happens is, is that this young Augustus, who's now in his 20s, is trying to establish his base of power in Rome, finds a key thing to have is the corn. He has to have wheat to feed the, the, the poor populations. And what Sextus Pompeius smartly is doing is attacking the ships as they're sailing from Sicily. And blocking him, and he realizes pretty quickly that if, if he could keep doing this, he can actually bring down Octavian. And Octavian has modest success, and in the end, uh, Agrippa is set the challenge of equipping him with a fleet that can actually take out Sextus Pompeius. So Agrippa sets off on this interesting journey where he builds a harbor in Campania. Yeah, it's artificial, uh, is, right? It's 100%. It's, uh, 
it's a, it, he takes a small lake and enlarges it and cuts a passage through, uses hydraulic concrete to do this, and builds what's called Portus Julius, which is named does after it, Julius. Is it, does he start using his own money that will later at this point, or does he use the state, state money for this project? Well, I think some part of it's going to be, don't forget, they're, they're, they're things called prescriptions, right? So anybody who's um, not a friend of yours, you, you draw up a list and say, uh, we're going to assassinate this guy and then we'll just take his wealth, right? So so mm. I think there's there's the dark, uh, brutal side of Roman politics, which is you just steal it from people who've got money, right? Mm. If, they're not, if, they're not, if they're for you, you can borrow the money, you can agree a rate of interest and you'll pay them back eventually. But if they stand against you or are a part of the, assassin group then you just you just prescribe them kill them and take their stuff um and, i'm and, not and, making you know, enough for you can't refuse <laughs> stab of the dagger so so they build this port and all the italian cities on the western coast which deliver basically hulls of ships and agrippa and his his carpenters will actually uh, will build out the equipment they'll finish the ships with towers and grappling irons they have a thing called the harpax which is fired from a catapult and it has like a claw on it and the idea is that when the warship is at sea they can fire this and it literally clamps into the enemy ship and they can use a windlass to literally draw the ship towards them and then they can then draw uh, another thing which is a corvus which is this yeah. ramp with a claw in it, and it then can then enable a land army marines to actually then board the other ship um and because you do you do write about this as well that the two ways of there was two ways of naval warfare was which, which one was just ram right straight into mm-hmm. into the boat or the other was disable the oars and just do a yes. on boat battle right that's one of the, yeah. the two ways to fight the naval yeah they battle. have they have a, a bronze beak called uh, a rostra a rostrum at the end and the idea is it's it it consists of a series of very very um sharp well sharp um bronze blades and the idea is that because roman um naval equipment is built by taking and and the wooden planks and butting them together with tendons um that you basically smash through and you create a hole in the ship sinks the preference is to try and take the ship and not sink it because it's valuable it's Mm. it's a war vessel you'd like to own them and in fact what more and more this is what they try to do they actually try to capture ships to build up their own navy so effectively, and I know that, that, that where we are in the story here is, is we're talking uh, 36 or so yeah. BC. And um, the claw. The claw. So, yeah. so there, are, there are two major battles. There are a series of battles on land in Sicily. Uh, Agrippa's uh, involved in one called uh, Milai, another one called Naulocus. And this actually happens off the shore of the Isle of Sicily, where a land army is also fighting. And amazingly, the man who's never actually become an admiral uh, up to that time has has learned how to be one by learning from Sextus Pompeius, right? He learns mm. from his enemy how you actually fight a naval battle and beats him. But that's the extraordinary mm. thing. I mean, this Sextus Pompeius, who's been running this uh, piracy campaign up and down and knows how to use small ships. That's go back to think like your enemy to win, to beat the, the enemy, right? As the saying goes, I believe. Well, I think what it what it highlights is, is that Agrippa is is very capable of learning from his competitors and from his mm. enemies. Um, unlike I think Marcus's uh, rivals maybe didn't do that. So, to, just to highlight this little point is that Sextus Pompey was fighting in what are called Liburnians. They're like pretty much two oar vessels. They're they're not terribly big, but they're very nimble. Uh, they they're used for raiding typically. Um, they have a relatively small crew. 
but you can have a mass of these and cause an awful lot of damage. Agrippa goes for big, huge ships, you know, four or five decker ships, and the idea that mass will, will win the day. And, and he does seem to, with that strategy, win. Um, what's very interesting is by the time we get to, and this is, that was the reason I told you that, so, so we can now tell the story of Actium. Yeah. He actually decides, in fact, that's not what we're going to do in Actium. What we're going to do is have a ship fleet made of small vessels, because to take the big vessels, in fact, will give us no advantage. All of Cleopatra's ships are massive. All of Antony's ships are massive because they're made with her money, right? And they're all trapped in this bay, Gomos, which is on the on the Ionian Sea. There's, it, there's an outlet. And they're trapped. And basically, the fleet that Agrippa has built um, is able to blockade this, this enemy fleet, the, the, the fleet of Antony and Cleopatra, in what they either want to do strategically is basically get them to surrender, which means the land army and the fleet, because there's tens of thousands of land army troops, and there are about 230 ships in the fleet on Antony's side. And in the meantime, they're wearing them down by attacking their supply lines. You know, they, they, they stop the ships with the food and the grain and all the rest of it coming to them. So more and more, Antony's army suffers with dysentery and malaria and all this. Stuff. Their bad luck was to choose the wrong side of the bay. They chose the swampy side. What happens is uh, Agrippa is launching his campaign from Corfu, then moves his operations base to the north side of the bay, where it turns out there is supply of fresh water, which is pretty useful. And they build. Was this... they aware of this advantage, or did he just drove out the area before the battle? Did he... um, I, I have to imagine he did, but there's no. I don't think there's anything did, in the. You think he just got lucky? Uh, it, it's possible. Um, but, you know, that's often how things happen in war, right? I mean, you, mm. you, you just get, get lucky. Um, and actually, again, to your other point you said earlier about uh, Anthony being a pretty lousy general, you know, he had the time. He moved the fleet there. Do you not think they would have done some reconnaissance? Mm. <laughs> but clearly, they, they, they chose that side of the bay and it was the wrong side. Uh, and more and more, his, 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 his fleet and his, uh, his, his group of generals get more and more frustrated. And with, with the success that Agrippa is enjoying as the commander-in-chief, Eventually, Octavian arrives with with, the, with some more ships and so on, and actually sets up his camp in Actium, and actually in Nicopolis. It'll ultimately be called Nicopolis, and uh, it's up on a hill. It has a spectacular view of the bay, and they can actually do their planning and commanding. And all they have to do is provoke the enemy to battle. And finally, after some pretty bad weather, um, it, 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 almost in a sign of desperation, on the second uh, of September, thirty-one BC. Um, they get sort of a hint that the fleet is mobilizing and is going to break out. So Agrippa takes over his command role and deploys his fleet out in the Ionian Sea in this great big sweeping arc. Not 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 con con, which is the one that's pointing inwards, but the one pointing outwards, right? And mm-hmm. as the as the Egyptian Antonian fleet sails out, they pull back. It's like they're drawing them in. And then at a certain time, around about 11 or 12, this yapix, there's a, there's a wind that blows and it changes directions. And actually now it fills the sails of Agrippa's fleet and now they can be catapulted forward. Mm. And now they're able to engage. So this, this fleet of about 200 or so small vessels now engages mm. a fleet made of much bigger vessels. Mm. And in amongst all of this is Queen Cleopatra's ship, which has yeah. a golden sail and is quite, quite clearly identifiable. And that might be the king's ship. That might yeah, be the queen's ship. Yeah. 
but that's where all the money is, right? So you need mm. to get you need to capture that shit. Yeah. Right? So it's so it seems to be they're playing a game here where um, they're either going to engage and they're going to try and uh, you know crunch uh, the command structure of of Octavian's army, which means under the command of Agrippa. But actually, what it seems to be they're doing, they want an escape. So they basically break through the lines and off they go sailing away. And actually, Antony's mm. fleet is now saying, "Where's the queen going? She's gone." And actually, in the meantime. Antony himself has jumped from his own ship yeah. onto her ship. He's why why does he decide to to run away? Is it cowardly or is he is it just realizing well, that this is a battle this. that he can't win? People debate this. I mean, it, it, so what you have to remember is this: is the sources that we have now are by and large sympathetic to Octavian, mm. right? Well, after all, he won the war, so you know he he could control the narrative. Uh, it's not clear as to whether the idea was to win the battle, win the battle of Actium, or to salvage the fleet and get as much of that fleet out and then withdraw the land on, which would have been a viable strategy. But what actually happened was, is that the Egyptian vessels, there's nine or ten of them, you know, and they, with all the money, right, they sail through, mm. they break through Agrippa's line, leaving all the bigger ships that they're now, and, and, and at that point, impulsively, perhaps, Octa- uh, Agri- Antonius jumps on Cleopatra's ship and then basically the, their commander-in-chief has left the scene, but his naval captains continue to fight, and they're in bigger vessels. And what happens is, is the choice of um, Agrippa to use the smaller vessels means they can basically run rings around the big ships and break them down. And over the course of the night, because it's a late afternoon, goes, it goes all the way through the night. It's, it's a long, bloody battle. And at a certain point, um, they start firing incendiaries. Um, and, and, and then it becomes this, this horrible sea battle with, with, with fire and burning ships and men diving overboard. And they, they're, of course, they're way down with their armor and some of these are drowning in the army, in the sea and so forth. So by dawn of the next day, you'd see a, a flotilla in burning flames and smoke and so on and bodies floating on the water. And now, so now, something that we didn't mention here, and you, you talked about this in your book as well, is that a great particular chosen to follow Octavianus, but it doesn't. So why doesn't it choose to follow Octavianus? Why doesn't it think? Why doesn't it choose to stay behind and just finish the battle? Well, my read, my read is is that the strategic imperative in all of this was to destroy permanently the ability to continue the war. Mm -hmm. Right? They knew that there were about two hundred vessels, seaworthy vessels, most of them, that needed to be disemboweled. They needed to be neutralized, and then when they'd done that. Statilius Taurus, who is the other best friend of Augustus, is, is on the land trying to engage Antony's army. And the idea is to break them. I think there's 19 legions. It's a, it's a huge force. And in fact, what happens is, is that by, by saying our primary objective is destroy the fleet, by actually, better yet, capture the fleet because we can use the ships. Mm. And the tragedy for them is that some of them get burned and, and such like. But, but that's what they do. They don't go chasing after. I believe, that won, you, I believe you have a night... I- Yes, that is a seventh, nineteen between seventh and nineteenth century painting of the scene of actually yeah, in, in your it's book. An engraving. Right? Yeah, yeah, there's an engraving, an imaginative engraving, which I think actually it's probably based on like the Battle of Lepanto or something, mm. right? Uh, so but that kind of shows what it was like with sinking ships and the despair of the losing side of the battle of soldiers sinking and ships being set on fire. You get, get the imagination of what it might have been like in the, in the picture. Indeed. I mean, what, what people have to understand is the casualty numbers. Um, for example, I'm going to read, to, for example, 
Uh, Agrippa had won the battle for Imperator Kaiser. He, at this point, we're calling him Octavian because that's how most people in modern yeah. understanding of history. But he's calling himself Imperator Caesar, which mm. means General Caesar. Right? And what's cheeky about that is Imperator is, is a commander. It just simply means commander. And it's the right of the Roman legions, which is a city, uh, a, 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 a citizen army. If if that leader brings them victory, at the end of the battle, they shout out, Imperator, Imperator, Imperator. Mm. It's called an acclamation. And that man can proudly say, I can put that name after my name. Mm. In fact, Marcus Antonius, usually he's a Marcus Antonius, yeah. Imperator. It's on the coins. What this man does, Octavian does, he cheekily takes Imperator as his first name. Mm. Call me Imperator, we would say, right? So now we call him Imperator Caesar. The point is that hundreds and, of... And another one that I'd like to address this in a, in a previous episode with Anthony Barrett, we talked about Caligula, and he says that nobody really knows what an Imperator means at that point. It's just a title, but it's not until Caligula that he has full authority, really. that he It's not until... That is just a title at some point, kind of like a hero is just a title in... To Hitler, it's and, and, kind of, it's the just, they just don't know what to do with it. It's just a, until Caligula comes up and he gets full power. Yeah, so so I see the pivot point, the the the, the uh, inflection point is where where Octavian cheekily in the 30s BC adopts it as his first name, mm. and through his gradual grabbing of power, prevents everybody else from having access to that name. It was quite acceptable through Roman history at that point that any winning victorious Roman legion could acclaim its leader as Imperator. And in fact, they would proudly bear on their inscriptions, you know, my mm. name is Claudius Marcellus, Imperator, right? And it didn't mean they were in charge of the Roman Republic, but it simply meant because I'm commander. I've been recognized mm. for my brilliance as a military leader. So uh, Augustus begins to see the significance of this. In other words, there's an implication, commander-in-chief, that's a different idea because the, the army is supposed to belong to the Republic. And more and more what's happening in because of the activities of Crassus and Julius Caesar and Pompey is the armies are not the property of the Republic. They're the property of them, right? So, so this is a dangerous thing. And this actually goes on. And this is all part of the, the great sweeping trends going on. But I want to bring your attention to this. Not more than 5,000 men from Antonius's fleet had lost their lives. Caesar's casualties, that's Octavian's casualties, were much greater numbering 12,000 dead, 6,000 wounded, and of them, 1,000 died later despite medical attention, right? On land, Antonius's 19 legions of undefeated men-at-arms and 12,000 cavalry could not accept that their commander had abandoned them and, and took several days before they surrendered. So you can see that Octavian, Imperator Caesar, is prepared to sacrifice a lot of men to get victory. And I have to imagine this was the sort of discussion that Agrippa and him would actually say, what is the objective here? Neutralize, destroy the capability of Antony and Cleopatra to wage the war. We They're just finish. people. We can get more of those. Yeah, and and by the way, when they won Actium, they could go chase after Antony anyway, which is exactly what they do. So finally, a year later, on the first of August of thirty BC, <laughs> Egypt falls to the Romans. Alexandria, the famous Battle mm. of Alexandria, falls, and then you know the famous story of the. Uh, the supposed suicide of Cleopatra. I mean, yeah. Anthony Goldsworthy in, implies that maybe, in fact, it was an assassin's job. And I actually mm. think that's probably likely um, because it would be awkward. I mean, what are you going to do with this recalcitrant tween? Okay, you can put her in a triumph, but actually she's still a problem. Get rid of her. Um, and of course, Anthony famously um, commits suicide. And, and, you know, and, and, and that's after a long mm. protracted period of trying to negotiate. And really the romantic uh, version is that that's the same way as Cleopatra does, right? With a snake bite or something. 
Well, no, he actually, as I understand it, he, he uses his own gladiosaur, Puglia, his dagger. Mm. And in fact, he hasn't died yet. And they eventually take his body to where the queen is supposed to mm. be. But of course, he's... he's is that where the story of. comes from, that they both died together, that kind of romanticized way? Well, I, I suspect that story comes from um, some of the, the, the historians. Uh, I'm trying to think who they would have been. Probably Cassius Dio. Uh, and and, and uh, I forget that um, the name is sketching right now. Shame on me. Uh, but it's all been romanticized by, by, of course, William Shakespeare to English audiences. Mm. Uh, and this is part of the problem. Understanding these stories, you have to disentangle the fiction from the, from the historical piece. And again, yeah. we come back to this troubling issue that the story is probably, in a sense, authorized when Augustus begins to take power. One of the things that I think is either in uh, Suetonius or in, uh, I can't remember who the other maybe it's Pliny the Elder, I, f- I forget, my apologies. Um, he makes the point that he put in charge uh, a fairly prominent writer, historian kind of figure, political figure, in charge of all of Julius Caesar's writings with the intention of, I mean, Julius Caesar's written comedy plays, all sorts of books, speeches. The only thing that we have are the commentaries in the Gallic War and the commentaries in the Civil War. That's by design, right? Because the other stuff was a little bit embarrassing. I mean, what he wanted to be able to say is, and this is the thing we didn't mention, shortly after, in the years after Julius Caesar's assassination, people began to reflect on the idea that uh, a process of metamorphosis had taken place. Within the weeks after the assassination of Julius Caesar, a star had been seen, a meteor, a shooting star had been mm. seen over Rome, and it was called the Cedus Julius, and it was put on coins, interestingly minted by his heir. And he then negotiated with the Senate and the Roman Assembly to actually make Julius Caesar a god, Divus Julius, which meant, interestingly enough, that Augustus could then, Octavian could, could then claim, I am Divus Filius. I'm actually the son of God, which is very handy because not only is a man with an army, but he's, got, he's the son of God. How are you going to argue with me, right? And, mm. and oh, by the way, my name is Imperator, just if you didn't know. So he's, he's a very, very calculating, I think a very sophisticated politician, and he's now in his late 20s. Uh, and and, and I, again, in, in Goldsworthy's book, he does a grand job of actually explaining this, this. His book is divided into parts, right? It starts as Octavius Turinus, and it goes into uh, you know, Caius Julius Caesar, and then it's Imperator Caesar, Divus Fili, and eventually becomes Augustus. Mm-hmm. And he, he, is, he is capable of reinventing himself and in every step of the journey is this man, Marcus Agrippa. He is an enabler. Uh, whenever uh, a, a Octavian Imperator Caesar needs a job done, whether it's fixing sewers or going off and engaging Pannonian rebels, he sends his man and his man goes and deals with it and comes back. And there's never any hint that it's going to go wrong. And Augustus's uh, reliance on this man is crucial because it frees him up to be able to go do things while his best friend's in charge, and then they flip. And it's a double act that, that in, in, in the next three, four decades becomes the way the Roman sister begins to work. So we tend to think of Augustus as being an autocrat, mm. but it's a little bit more subtle than that. It, it's, it's really a double act. He can get, he gets the, the kudos as being mm. princeps. He gets, he gets the title of, uh, in a sense, head of state. He's the number one man. 
kind of like a prime minister in a sense in the modern terms yeah so in fact in the senate he has the role of basically being able to convene the meetings and speak first and and all of those sorts of things and direct what goes in the minutes the accounts Uh, and that's crucial because you get to discuss you know what matters to you not necessarily what matters to the rest and by being able to leave and then have your totally reliable man carry on that duty for you right while you're away because what what augustus and now we're talking kind of like the 27 period and after that very cleverly understood that to complete how can i put this one i'm running the risk of getting in trouble here we have had politicians in the modern age who seem to think that dominating the media narrative is the way to win influence and power augustus seemed to understand there's a point at which you have to pull back from that because you'll if i use the word piss off can i use that you, you piss off the people, right? You, you need to achieve what you want to and then go away. Let other people handle all the stuff. And this is what Augustus does. This, by 27 BC, and this is only four years after the Battle of Actium and three years after the fall of Egypt, and now he's paid off all his creditors, the score is settled. The men that were in the armies on both sides have been combined in a great many, 120,000 of them were demobbed. And Agrippa actually was the man demobbing all these troops. So there's a sort of, tentative kind of balance now that war is over and now they've got to lick their wounds and sort of become a united society again and the senate agrees that because of what this man has been able to do and actually gone through this somewhat strange i achieved what i set out to do i have avenged my father i have um won battles against the foreign enemy because the foreign enemy is in fact never antonius it's always cleopatra Right, that's the claim. It's, it, it's a foreign war, not a civil domestic war. I will give back the armies that I have to the Republic and I surrender my powers and the Senate goes, oh, really, you're going to do that? That's amazing. That's a, that's an extraordinary gesture of goodwill. Yeah. Hey, how about this? You actually keep the army and you actually manage all those areas because you're apparently very good at war fighting. You look after all the territory around the Roman Empire, but we get to keep the places making the money. Hmm. And what you end up with is this division of the Roman Empire into developmental war frontier zones, which by and large is everything kind of around the periphery. And the Senate mm-hmm. keeps control of the middle bit, which is brilliant because now that means this man who is revered at this point, they give him this honorary title, Augustus, um, has the ability to wage war about the society if he needs to, but actually doesn't, has a means to make money through the provinces he has. And the Senate can keep doing what it always did, sending its guys out every year, you know, raising tax generate revenue, taking some of that for themselves and just, you know, enjoying a very high lifestyle. And this go this 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 what's called the constitutional uh accord, this agreement between Augustus now, twenty-seven BC, and the Senate becomes the basis for running the Roman Empire. Oh. And Agrippa Oh the Respublica not- as it's called. Yes, the, the Respublica, yeah. which, which, which I translate in the book as Commonwealth. Yeah. Mm. It sort of means things public. And Agrippa is part of being the enabler. And I have to imagine, and this is where the history don't tell us, but you have to say, if this young man, who's now 30 or something, uh, is thinking in these grand but very, very sophisticated political and military terms, he's doing it with his friends. And you can almost imagine them whiteboarding. <laughs> If we do this as this, what would be the consequence? Well, who do we know? Oh, we know those people. Could you think we could influence them? This one, yes. That one, no. Could they marry a daughter or something? Could we not bring them into the family? That would be an idea. And, and you can imagine this is how they game out the scenarios. 
and it works brilliantly. So <laughs> all the way through Augustus's reign, every Fine. five and every ten years, they renew his powers. He has imperium conconsulari, which which basically means he has the he has the power to run the affairs in this what is called his provincia, his duty, uh, which numbers something like twelve provinces, including. Uh, you know, p- p- parts of northern Gaul, the three provinces in there, and actually Illyricum and what would become Germania and uh, parts of the Iberian Peninsula and out going off towards some of the east. And um, his power is nearly unassailable. It's not without threat. It, it's not quite established yet. But he's manipulated the power structure which existed by using everything that was legal and actually basically encroaching Crucially, he gains the, the title, I think, in 23 BC, where he becomes basically permanent tribune. Mm. So now he can veto everybody else. And in 19, he arranges that his power is supreme amongst all governors. So you mm. can see how this, he becomes, by engineering the system, the absolute guy with all the power. And yet, yeah. he will always claim, well, I'm only the first man in the state. And of course, you know, it's all by agreement. I mean, yeah. Uh, I, I actually, and I'm, I'm going to be treading, te- treading dangerously. I often think of um, what's happening in, in, in Russia right now with Putin, right? How mm. there was a fleeting moment where it sort of became a democracy and now it's become a total autocracy yeah. under one man, Vladimir Putin, who in a funny sort of way in his younger days had a facial resemblance to Augustus. And I see some really strange parallels there. Um, the difference is that Augustus had Agrippa to fight his wars. Yeah, something that I, I found fascinating as well, and we had to move on, I'm afraid, because we have to get through the story. But something I, that I found fascinating in the, in the chapter, you talked about how Agrippa, and it travels quite a lot. If you look at some of the maps you have in this book, it's quite a distance in the Roman Respublica that he travels in and one of those places is to Herod the king of the Jews which I found yeah. fascinating and he does seem to have a rather good re- relationship with Herod at that time which I, I, I rather enjoyed reading about so let's talk about his relationship yeah, so, to Herod the king of the Jews so having set that up so, so now it from from basically the 20s BC through the next two decades there's this flip-flop arrangement where where both Augustus, because we'll call him Augustus now, and Agrippa, have a sort of double act going back and forth. And they realize the way to get things done is to be visible, right? It, it's a bit like the British monarchy. The way they rule is actually the queen was, was, was successful because people saw the queen. So Augustus realizes he's got to be out there being seen. And Agrippa is his deputy and he's going out representing Augustus and their regime. And what they do is they go to cities on these grand tours and they actually go build buildings and they, 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 they sort of share the largesse. Mm. And Agrippa is, is an active participant in that. He goes and Agrippa uses West a lot of his own funding, right? His own money to build this amazing well, project. Well, he's become he a fabulously wealthy man, right? I mean, at all those prosecutions and the victories that he won and he's got lands that he's acquired and also, you know... I, but he does a state in Sicily, among others... Yeah, and, and, and what's you should have thought about renting those out as an Airbnb as an extra ton of cash income. <laughs> well, I think he needed to worry about that. He could buy a whole town if he wanted to. He could buy yeah. a bunch of Airbnb. But but what's intriguing is that a, a, a sort of traditional way the Romans approached the world was to be given status, was to be visible by being generous. 
they would build a bathhouse, they would build a temple, they would build, you know, uh, a, an arena with an amphitheater mm. and all this sort of stuff. And, and you were, you were um, talking about this earlier as well, and he built among others. And we will get back to Herod, of course, we initially talked yeah. about that earlier, but well, you, well, we have well, to talk about this first. But he built a whole campus that I believe you talked yes. about earlier as well. And you can see the campus again in, in the book here, which is quite extraordinary, I think. Yeah, and what's interesting, the money from that largely came from his own purse. And so here's an example. So when so if I go back to 44 BC, right, Antony has suddenly got access to you know the wealth of Julius Caesar, and effectively he starts grabbing statues. Oh, I love that statue. Oh, that wall painting. Take it off the wall. I want it in my... And he, he puts in his own villa. He, he's the opposite me. of what Agrippa is. Basically. Yeah, what Agrippa does, he goes and buys stuff and says, this would look great in our park. This would look great in our bathhouse that all the people can see. And and it's it, it's fascinating, isn't it? This 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 mm-hmm. opposite way. We will be successful and popular because we, we give to the people and through their adulation and thanks and gratitude, that is not we, what I would call a similar parallel to Putin, though. He does not... No, 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 no. But, but what I was trying to sort of say, there was a yeah, control yeah, of the narrative. Yeah, that, that was a joke there. Power, yeah. Right? Because what's happening all of this is that, they, that gradually, 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 the number of choices are actually being narrowed. A lot of the Senate of the Republic at the time of Judas Caesar were wiped out in the Civil Wars. And a lot of the people put in the Senate now are people who are lackeys, right? Mm. People who got their money through Augustus and being on his side. So there's a lot more people who are going to go, yes, of course, we'll vote on that, uh, which I think is very important to understand. I mean, there's not a lot of opposition. There is opposition. Uh, Hayden Obama's family, for example, is one of those case in point. So it's not a straightforward, non-contest type of thing. But but the way that Agrippa attack, attacks this is that we're going to be, buy big buildings. We're actually uh, build big buildings, and we're going to put them in place at the campus margin where everybody can use them. They can amble across the parks, and they can sit there and have their lunch. And and, and this is popular. People love this sort of stuff, right? So so what they begin to realize is actually, even though sort of what's happening politically is there's uh, a grabbing of power and tightening of power. Actually, there's no war now. We have these wonderful buildings and parks, and it's pretty good. Pretty good, right? My kids can grow up not having to face war, which you know, the previous decades they haven't been the case. So to go back to Herod, mm. uh, it's, been, it's, it's been, but basically, like like you say, the one of the famous lines of Justin's that, and much of this is a part of of Agrippa's work, right? That he says, "I left what to say? I don't really. I left the city in marble. I came in with." What's the first line of the sentence again? I, I, I left found this... the city of brick and left yeah, it one of marble. That's the one, yeah. Um, and that, a lot of this is attached to, to Agrippa, right? His uh, well, I believe so. Yes. I mean, the, the, in in the first, between 20... Actually, no, go all the way back to... The Pantheon was built around about 37, right? And, and, and there's nobody knows what it looks like. I suspect that it didn't have a dome. It was actually a circular building... The original idea was it would actually have a sort of traditional pediment. So the, I actually think that the front of the what we see the pe, uh, the pantheon is actually part of the original structure, and those columns which come from Syene with the with the pink granite which was shipped up all the way from Egypt. Um, in, in a sense, what Hadrian was doing in building, he was taking the original plan and said, "I got a brilliant way where I can make this even better. I'm going to put a big concrete dome on it and all this stuff, and I'm going to do align it with." Uh, there are precedents in, 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 I think, Pergamon and other parts of uh, Greek Asia. Um, uh, there were monuments which basically were circular and open. They were like contemplative spaces. They were, you know, they were just magnificent architecture. 
what was interesting as as you would go up the steps and you'd walk into the cons and the, the door to get into this round space had alcoves and the one space was for Augustus and the other space was for, for a statue of Agrippa. And Agrippa's original intention was to call this the Augustium. It was actually a building dedicated to Augustus and his achievement. And Augustus says, well, I'm very flattered into that. That's, that's really great. Mark. I, I think I can't do that. No, 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 no. Yeah. It's, the, it's the wrong message. And they come up with a name Pantheon. Actually, the Roman is Pantheum, as it turns out. Pantheon is the, is the Greek form. Um, and what we what was in the side, inside, we don't know. What we do know is in the pediment, the triangular piece above the entablature, was a group of statues, um, which have all that been, been lost. We also know that part of this was caryatids. Somewhere in this structure, it may well have been the round structure, caryatids were, were part of it. So it, Agrippa's Pantheon did not look like the one we have now. There may be elements of the building that we have now that have actually incorporated uh, the original building, but it was actually burned down several times, rebuilt by Domitian. And, and even after Hadrian, it, it had burning and, and was rebuilt several times by people like Septimus Severus. So I think what you see in that is, again, if you think about the, his vision, what they're thinking of is that we need to make a visual statement in brick and marble. So the statement, I find a city of brick and I leave it one of marble. Some people say it's in the literal sense, that's what they did. Actually, Roman buildings are brick on the inside and they put slabs of marble on the outside. So it's a bit yeah. of a trick, really, right? You, you can make a building look fabulous by sticking a veneer of, of marble on the outside. But it's also a, um, a message which is to say, I found a republic which is downtrodden, made of ordinary mm. brick, and I polished it up really good. And here it is. It's a shiny place and we all want to live in it now. Mm. So there, there's two ways of looking at that statement. And Agrippa is absolutely central to that. Um, what's amazing is that it's, a lot of this is all funded by himself. Um, because been an aqueducts, several aqueducts as well, right? Not just in Rome, but outside of Rome as well. Yeah, so anybody who's been to Rome and been to the Tivoli Fountain and who hasn't, because you go there and you see this amazing Renaissance backdrop with statues and water pouring out and people sit there and they flick a euro into the into the water hoping to come back because that's the message. Um the water comes from a source many miles away along pipelines that are actually part of the original Aqua Virgo, which is actually uh, what was built by Augustus, by Augustus guy, Agrippa. And what was, what was clear is, is that the city of Rome at that time was actually a pretty rough and tumble place. It, it wasn't elegant in a way mm-hmm. that if you see the big films like The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, you know, that, that, that famous film with... Uh, um, um, Sophia Loren and uh, all sorts of famous Not actors. Not a given like, book, the film. Yeah, you know, that is Rome of the 3rd century, 2nd, 3rd century AD. This is not the Rome as, as Augustus and Agrippa knew it. And what they were beginning to do was put in this public mm-hmm. infrastructure. There were some buildings in there that because Julius Caesar had built them. And of course, gladiators as well to mention other films. Yes, there we go. Um, so, so we have this idea of a very grand central forum and all the rest of it. Well, it wasn't quite as grand as that. And in fact, um, Augustus starts a building program, and, uh, and I make the po- point in my other book, Augustus at War, that um, what, what Augustus is doing with Agrippa's victories and those victories, uh, they bring the war spoils and they put them on display. They, they, they make the Roman Forum, which is the only one at the time, by the way, they make this basically a monument to Roman victory brought to them by Augustus and friends. And then what Augustus then builds is the Forum Augustum, the Augustan Forum to the side of it, slightly behind the Senate House. 
And that becomes like a super duper modern architecture experiment. And then further north of that then is the campus Marcus where they're putting all these parks and lakes and stuff for people to enjoy. So they embark on this beautification process. And also what Marcus Agrippa is doing, by the way, is going underground, making sure the drains work because none of this is possible. So, so what you have to imagine, and maybe people don't appreciate this, is that our water system has storage points and we can turn a tap and, right, and the water will come. Right? The Romans had a system which was continuous flow. Right? What they would do is they'd put public fountains in places. They haven't got faucets and taps on them. But they turn them on. No, the water is constantly flowing. And one thing that Agrippa did, which, which was groundbreaking, he realized that people had a pretty poor lifestyle in the sense. A lot of them were living in rickety old tenement buildings to deploy hundreds of water fountains. So at least they get the chance to get fresh water. And it's good water from this from the source outside in the hills outside Rome, supplied by the various aqueducts. He, one, he then goes one better. He actually says, why don't we actually take, you know, these bathhouses that are very small and a lot of them privately owned. Why do we build a really big one Right, with all the, the the cold room, the hot room, and the tepid room, and the gymnasium, and we'll put it just by the by the pantheon I've just built, and we'll decorate it with scenes of naval battles and stuff, and Neptune and, and what have you. So, what actually one of the things that's also intriguing is that the great bathhouses that were like the baths of Trajan, the baths of Caracalla, and these sorts of people find their origin in actually the first bathhouse of Agrippa. Only a tiny little bit of it survives now. It's basically some brickwork and some evidence of some sort of architecture and column there. But it was groundbreaking. He built the first kind of concept one. Mm. And again, these you have to understand, if, if you'd been born into an age of war and uncertainty and fear, and now you can walk into a world where I can get fresh water, I can actually go and have a bath, I can walk around in a public park, I can actually go vote in the public. You see how that is transformative. And this is the narrative that Agrippa is actually helping Augustus yeah. to write. And in the meantime, when there are problems, Augustus sends Agrippa off to go and fight them. So let's talk about Herod. Yeah. So one of the things that Agrippa is asked to do is go out and visit, tour the, the, the eastern provinces. And it turns out that on his visits to Judea, and Judea is not a Roman province, it's a client ally. And the Romans have this really interesting arrangement where if they don't own directly rule uh, a piece of land, a territory, they will actually negotiate with whoever is in charge to say, you know what, we won't invade, but if you would like to side with us, we'll recognize you for who you are and you know, you'll know, you adopt Roman ways and, and, and when we need you, you'll send an army because you know, that's, that, that's the cost of all of this. And this is what Herod agrees to do. So he becomes this ally. He started off by being an ally of Marcus Antony and he switches sides. He switches sides. Mm -hmm. So he's always... Uh, a wily politician, and uh, these two guys hit it off. It just seems to be that somewhere in this thing, they, they find a similar interest in architecture. Herod is building Roman-style, Greek-style cities in, in, in Judea, and he loves that, that he hears about the Portus Julius we talked about earlier, which is the hydraulic concrete form that you talked about, converting a lake and so on. And he says, I've got an idea to build one, a city I'm building called Caesarea. You should see it. And he builds this artificial harbor and this perfect thing with stadium and all the rest of it there. And in fact, um, they build this and it, a lot of it's using the same techniques that a group would have done. And you can imagine them having a dinner party talking about how they compare the size of their concrete blocks on the ships that put in there and so on. And then they go on this kind of tour together. They take a ride off and they go through Asia and so on and so forth. Crucially, there comes a point where um, a Roman ally is usurped. 
and calls for help. And Agrippa is sent out to deal mm. with this. And he sends a message, oh, by the Agrippa, I need your fleet. Will you send me your fleet? And so this goes off. And Agrippa's going off there to deal with this problem in now what we call the Crimea. Interesting enough, the Crimea was actually within the Roman sphere of influence at this point. Mm. So the whole Black Sea was, was, was under Roman influence. It wasn't actually directly ruled. But it was very important to them. They had access to it for its wealth and so on and so forth, because you know, Crimea actually can then trade with, with territories further afield. Uh, Agrippa is able to deal. He's able to handle this crisis, it turns out, just because people find out Agrippa's on the way. And people go, oh, well, maybe we ought to sort this out before he gets here. And this is kind of what happens. His reputation goes ahead of him. He's able to get stuff done. And it's a rather formidable reputation. You don't even have to show up to the battlefield. Already people are going, okay, mate, we're not going to win this. Let's, let's cut a deal. And in fact, Herod arrives too late and they say, okay, thanks for your shit, so you, you can take them back now if you want. But they always have this really, really uh, meaningful relationship. And um, it's, it's really intriguing because what it means is, is that Agrippa becomes very sympathetic to the Jewish causes. Yeah, he does attend to Jewish rituals, rituals sorry, as, as well, right? He does seem to serve Jewish ceremonies, etc., right? Well, I think what, what, what we see is evidence. I mean, there are letters preserved in, I think, Josephus, which are sort of correspondence issued by his office mm. to the governors that report into Agrippa. And it basically, the bottom line is this, is that um, there's been too much singling out of the Jews because they think slightly differently than the Greek-speaking communities. They have rights to adjudicate fairly and respect they have a Sabbath day and let them do this sort of thing. And if the Greeks give you problems, you've got to go talk to them and, and, and address the issues, right? So, so Herod and the Jewish communities around Asia, Turkey now that we call it, actually suddenly find in Agrippa a champion. And I think what that tells you about Agrippa the man is that he, at his heart, he's, he's an immensely fair man. Now, can we call him democratic? No, that would be the wrong thing to do because that's not really the, the way to think about it at all. But I think what it tells you, he has an open mindedness and a profound idea that if we had agreed to accept you on your terms, then our responsibilities are to observe the terms. And if people take liberties with that, then I'm here to remind you that the agreement was we respect them on those terms. So uh, it, it's really, really interesting. So, so the Jews actually, even today, even today, I have a friend over in, um, in, in, in one of the towns in Israel that's actually trying to translate this book into Hebrew, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's because, That's awesome. yeah, because Herod is still a, a figure of great interest to modern Jews mm-hmm. and modern Israelis because he he's a colossal yeah. figure. Um, but they're also very interested in Agrippa because this guy was best friends with him. And in fact, actually, it turns out to be an ally of Judaism, mm-hmm. not because he was himself uh, pro-Jewish, but the fact he looked at it from a point of view of, you could argue, good governance mm-hmm. requires us to be fair, even handed. Mm-hmm. And I, be, I believe we mentioned this on the podcast as well, right? That the Romans didn't really care about the religion as long as they didn't impose on their religions, which it did eventually in the in the Constantine's time. But you know, they didn't really care about others' religion as long as it wasn't a threat to the Romans. The the, the analogy I would draw to this, right? That so I'm an American citizen now, and and one thing I've done is to swear to defend the Constitution and the flag, right? Mm. The flag and the constitution are what bind Americans together. You can be a different color, a different religion. You can be different sexual orientation. You can, be, you can be different in all sorts of different ways. But what binds us together as Americans is that thing in the corner of my office over here, right? And the fact that there's a little book which has got the constitution written in. That's what we all agree on. And in a sense, the Romans arrived at a, a situation like that 2,000 years before where they said, look, we have gods. 
Okay, three principal ones, a triad of gods. You've got to respect Jupiter, Minerva, and Mars. And increasingly, increasingly what happens over the ages is there's an emperor cult, and they like you to actually worship the emperor. And they say, just do ours, turn up for the festivals and the sacrifices. We'll let you do whatever you like. But please don't be in opposition, because what you're saying is... Christianity enters the chats. That's another <laughs> podcast. <laughs> another one. Um, you know, and, and in fact, uh, what, what's intriguing is that there are pockets of Judaism actually don't want to do this either and become sources of resistance. So we end up with, for example, lots of revolutions and you end up, of course, with uh, 66 going through to 70 and ultimately Masada 73. And then the book I just finished, which is the Bar Kokhba War, which is 132, 136, after which Judaism is no longer a, is a militant resistance movement. But Christianity continues to be one of those mm. militant resistance movements and um it becomes an existential threat because the point is is that if you're going to take our flag away in our constitution what else is there you know and 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 mm. as long as everybody believes in it it functions and mm. to go back to the reason why augustus and agrippa are flipping back and forth is that they are invigorating reinvigorating this message of, of, of a sort of Roman way. Yes, we respect that you have a tradition and that's perfectly fine. And we know we have some old scores because you actually sided with Marcus Antonius, you didn't support me, but hey, we're all friends now and everything's good. And, 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 and this is how they sort of establish their presence. Well, I say their presence, it's Augustus' presence, using Agrippa to help to establish that presence. And it's actually very clever. Um, they're able to do it without deploying troops against the people. Um, so they avoid civil war. What's absolutely fascinating is that under Augustus, there are no more civil wars, right? There are lots of foreign wars. There are mutinies of the army. But you, of course, got the Tetherbird first, catastrophe. Well, and, and, and that's not Rome's greatest defeat either. And it's certainly, but but we're talking 9 AD. Mm. Agrippa's died in 12 BC. Yeah. And that's that's a different time. Yeah. And, and that maybe is probably a good time to talk about the death of, of Agrippa. Um, but so something, I want, is... something I want to mention because, like you said in your book as well, that Herod kind of becomes in awe of Agrippa a little bit. But later, and I've did a friend, of, and I wouldn't say a friend of mine, he's running a YouTube channel on Jewish history. He is called yes. Sam Arano. He talks about, uh, Seth told me that the last one, well, so called last kingdom. Of the Jews, he was called Agrippa, named after Marcus Agrippa. That's right. Ab- absolutely, absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, that there was a. Um... So if, I, would, I would just like to add that check out his channel. It's uh, great on Jewish history. Absolutely, I absolutely recommend it if you want to learn more. But but Jewish history in general, he does a lot of great stuff on the channel. On the channel, so absolutely recommend checking can, it out. Can I actually throw this in? So when I was researching my book on Barkoffer, I learned something I yeah. hadn't really appreciated before. Is that Jewish history has been largely written out of European history? until fairly recently. Um, and it was like, so during the age of the Enlightenment, we're talking sort of 16th century and so on and so forth, that Europeans were telling the story of their crusades and mm. the Christendom and all this. And the Jews were hardly mentioned in all this. And in fact, what the, what the, the Jewish tradition has had to write its own histories. Yeah. Right. And, and, and I think what's interesting is that to include all of these histories into the human story mm. is absolutely crucial. Um, and when I was writing about Barkhofer, I was learning that how, for example, that man, that's totally, we do that podcast separately, but it's, it, I, I encourage people to go and learn about it because 
um, wonderful stories about a, a really, really important culture. Yeah. And I just found it fascinating how, and it tells you the impact that Agrippa had on the Jews from the last, or last importations. King, King of the Jews was named after Marcus Agrippa, the one that we're talking about in, in this episode. Yeah. Now, I just want to add, by the way, so so um, Herod Agrippa dies around about 4 BC, so eight years after his great friend Agrippa. Mm. And he's not a liked man. He's not actually even a wealthy, a, a, a healthy man. Um, he's he, he's actually a pretty brutal, cruel administrator of his own family. By the way, he, he doesn't think anything of actually you know killing someone to, to settle a score or something. So he's a pretty tough politician. Um, but from the Roman perspective, he's very reliable. We we can rely just on him keeping that place under control, and that's what they like. They haven't got to deploy an army to it. Mm. The problem happens in in the years after four BC. When Herod goes and they his his land is divided amongst his sons, and then it goes to to use the American expression to hell in a handbasket, mm-hmm. under which finally the Romans under Augustus says, "Okay, I've had enough of this. We're just going to take the whole place over," yeah. and that then becomes the problem set of a whole different set of problems. Yeah. So yeah, uh, something we have I want to talk about. We mentioned this as well is that Agrippa travels a lot in the Respublica, and what it's quite the distance. And again, you do show this on the map. In your book, the the distances travels in this during after Augustus incarnation as an imperator as well. It's quite far that it travels. So why why all these travels in? Well, like I said earlier, I, I think it's really because they have to be visible, right? You, the 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 the, um, the world is still living in the wake of a bloody civil war, right? This was the war. First off was the assassination, the, 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 the war to defeat the assassins of Julius Caesar, followed by the civil war of Antony and Cleopatra against the Roman state. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's a lot of blood that's been let. So, that, so, so Agrippa is, is an ambassador to try and uh, soothe old wounds. And I mean, many of the Greek cities, for example, Athens was one of them. They did not particularly like Augustus. They felt they'd actually been pretty harshly treated. And uh, what's interesting, one of the things that Agrippa does as sort of gift to the Athenians... Well, was it more like a propaganda tour? Uh, well, I, I don't know about that, but what, what he does is he builds a, a what's called the Odeon. It's a colossal... Again, we come back to Colossal. Yeah. Big building in the, in the, in the centre of the Agora in Athens. He builds this beautiful um, leading, leading technology edge uh, building um, the, the foundations of which you can still see, so that they can have poetry readings and they can have uh, readings of Homer and uh, Hes- you know the, the Greek the Greek artists and writers and poets, in in a sort of deference to recognize that the Greek culture has value. I'm trying to find uh, the photo you have in the book right now. Just to, yeah. So yeah. there's the, so I, I was lucky. The the, the American uh, I think it's the American School of, uh, of Archaeology. So if you go to page one six six one six seven, you'll see that's that's what they put together, and and it's a fabulous building, and you can still see parts of it. Oh yeah, here we go. Here here we go. Yeah. I don't know if you can see it quite well. If I'm holding this up right. Yeah. There, I think hey, if you're watching on YouTube, you might be able to see this. Yeah. So yeah. if you shuffle down a little bit so they can see the other page. And just yeah. Okay. Just, yeah. There yeah. we go. Yeah. There. This, this, is, this is big. <laughs> this is big building, right? And it's state-of-the-art using all the latest technology. And remember I read an extract where, where at the Derivatorium, he's building 
one of the, the biggest ceilings. He's using all of that insight to try and really impress. And the idea here, I have to imagine, is, look, my gift to you is that I, I love Greek culture and I'm going to give you the best I can give. And it's going to be this, this, this cultural center. Right? I mean, to and, be and fair, you... the Romans stole pretty much half of Greek and made it, made it their own. So, Well, y- yes, but there was, there was a sort of, how can I describe it? Yes, there was a respect and love and also a slightly Disney Park angle mm. to this. Uh, you know, people, Romans would go to Greece to sort of take in the sights and learn a bit of rhetoric and then go to Sparta and actually watch the performances put on by the locals to demonstrate how Spartan kids would be raised up, you know, and they do all these dance routines and stuff like that. I mean, it, 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 it was a sort of caricature of the best of Greece. But, but bearing in mind, you've got to remember that Actium was in the Greek peninsula, right? Mm. And a lot of the Greek cities like Corinth and Athens and other places have been pretty roughly treated and what, what these two guys have to do is in order to, to bring all of these communities together, and if I can, if I can somehow bring the point to you, um, this is a world there is no email and no radio and no television. It is all basically through written papyrus and little bits of broken pottery and people showing up in the name of the, the, the administration to try and say, look, you have to stick with us. The mission we all have is peace, prosperity, and, you know, the, the great family of, uh, of, of, of peoples. And as, as long as people buy into that and they keep it going, this Pax will continue to exist. And every so often there are outbreaks and rebellions and riots in streets. And in fact, one of the things that's interesting is that there is trouble when, when, when Augustus is island hopping. Um, he has to stay in another island because he knows he's really unpopular in Athens. So he stays, I think, on Samos. And in the meantime, what's happening is that there's another dimension to this. Agrippa's health is not good. It seems he, ha- he has gout or something like mm. gout. And his legs cause him extreme pain. I don't know what, why that's the case. The sources aren't terribly good about this. He apparently treats himself to overcome the pain by having really hot vinegar mm. and plunging his legs into them. So he us- he's using greater pain to nullify the other pain. And he goes to Greek um, curative sites to try and find a cure for his condition. So you have to imagine that this man who's traveling all around the place, he's going in his ship. And what's dramatic about the ship is that because he'd won at Milan and Nalocus against Sexus Pompey back in 35, I think, no, 36, 37, um, Augustus gave him a blue pennant. Hmm. And this dramatic flag in sea blue flies on his ship. So anybody traveling goes, that's the great Admiral Agrippa. Yay! You know. So everywhere he goes, you can imagine he's identified, and he's probably got an entourage of, of soldiers as well as a, sort of like a security detail. So he's not traveling like there's probably a group of people. So this is very public. So what I'm trying to sort of say is that when Agrippa, Agrippa arrives in, in your town, you know it. You, you know he's arrived. And, and in the meantime, he's married the daughter of, uh, of Augustus. It's a political marriage. But there does seem to be some love in there. She gives she, him three kids. She's the one who later marries Tiberius, right? After after Augustus. That is our Greek passerites, right? Yeah. Yeah, that is absolutely right. But and it doesn't is, go so well, does it? No, well, we could talk about him in another podcast. Oh, uh, yeah. Because I'd love to. But but the, but the point is, I want to, to, to emphasize to people watching and listening is that um, in in Roman circles, uh, higher status circles, marriage was really about making connections. Uh, bringing names of more prosperous and higher status people into your family. 
and it's it's really not about the love. There, there's certainly an element of you know have yeah. kids to keep the family name. And but, again, I, I mean, yeah. do this justice in uh, in our Germanicus episode that there is some, like you said, there are some cases that they do find love, like with Germanicus and Agrippina the yes. Elder. They, there was genuine affection there, as we discussed in the episode. Yes, and, and in fact, I think he gets it from his father, Nero Claudius Drusus, who marries Antonia Mina, who, of course, is actually the daughter of Marcus Agrippa, isn't that? No, mm. of, of Marcus Antonius, which had her name Antonia. Um, and, and, and there she is able to say, I'm a univira, I'm actually a one-woman man, uh, which, was, which was, by implication, not a common thing. But also, it was a, it was a mark of respect, because she lived as a widow, venerating the the name of her husband and actually in in a sense um becoming very highly respected and agrippa is different because he's doing what his friend wants his friend says hey marry my niece she'll be part of the family okay i'll do that uh you need to divorce her because i i need you to marry her okay i'll do that oh by the way my daughter i think you need to marry her now because that means you'll be my son-in-law and it's actually really i want to adopt your sons now so uh... i want to adopt your sons okay here we go okay that's fine. It's it's kind of it's Roman Game of Thrones, if I if I can if I can try and draw that analogy, where sad to say that women are pretty disposable, right? Uh, the, the woman yeah. probably doesn't have a lot to say in this, except in the world of I Claudius, written by Robert Graves, mm. where there's a, if, on the TV series, if you've not seen it, there is a marvelous scene where Julia has a row with her father, and she basically says, "I'm not like a piece of cabbage that you can throw around with everyone. I I know I I've got rights too." And he basically has to tell her, no, you don't. <laughs> um, I, I need you now to bury Tiberius, but I don't like Tiberius. You know, because by then Agrippa has died and, mm-hmm. and he needs to make sure that his daughter's married. And mm-hmm. it goes rather wrong. It goes rather, but that but that's a whole different story. I, I just want to make this point, though, that interesting enough, going back to the idea that Augustus always needs to have around him advisors. When, Ag- when Agrippa dies in 12 BC, Within about a year, his stepson Tiberius, through his wife Livia, Drusilla, um, and he—that's the one he his... genuinely loved. Again, that's a, that's his true love, right? He does. Well, so it's ironic, isn't it, that Tiberius marries a daughter of Agrippa, Agrippina, hmm. Agrippina, um, and he's told uh, in I think is it eleven BC that he must divorce her to yeah. marry Julia. But and this is devastating. Around. This yeah. is devastating for him. Yeah, it's de- so, so you have to imagine that Agrippa has some good kids. Um, his his young boys seem to kind of go off the rails. Caesar Lucius, that's that's an interesting story. Just there, tend to have been the spoiled brats, um, and it didn't work out terribly well. They both die in uh, the single digit BC and AD, um, which is why, in the end, Augustus has to adopt Tiberius because all the options are run out. He's the Germanicus is, uh, you know, is, is not old enough or is not considered to be mature enough, and um, Augustus makes his makes his conclusions, but Tiberius, remarkably, in temperament, is very similar to Agrippa. He, he's he's a great man of military means. He's thoughtful. Mm-hmm. He gets things done. That's the important thing to Augustus: loyalty, get things done. And and again, and, I wanted to add this that we did this justice in our Caligula episode. So that Tiberius is vastly misunderstood as a sexual pervert, but it's not really. The case with Tiberius that he's was more interested in poet poets or not poverty but poetry and military battles than actually sexual de- endeavors or he wasn't really the sexual pervert that people make him out to be. So you, you've kind of read part of my book somewhere. How did you get hold of my book? <laughs> the, <laughs> uh, the, 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 the thesis I have, which I'm working to, 
so this is kind of a preview where I'm coming from, uh, is that to his core, Tiberius was really happiest with the army. Mm. He, uh, he enjoyed the structure, the uh, camaraderie, and I think the old-style discipline of, of the Legion and he knew where he was. He was given instructions. He would actually work a way to get done. And he wasn't always able to get it done, but most of the time he was. He was a competent man. The problem was he had a sort of temperament which didn't make it easy for him to get on with other people. Worse is the idea that if he actually ever has to work with a civil administration, oh, my God, this is the opposite of the army. This is a chaotic people playing games, right? Mm. And he doesn't feel terribly comfortable in that. So when he's given the instructions in basically 1314 AD, it's down to you to take it over, to keep the project that I and Agrippa started back in the 30s BC. Mm. It's working. If I can use this expression, don't screw it up. Mm. And, and, and being a soldier... Imagine hearing that in Latin. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to know what that is. But, but I, I'm kind of putting words into Agrippa's, into, into, into Augustus. But I think the, the, you're my last choice now. Don't screw it up. Um, and you can see that it was his last command from the imperator, the commander-in-chief. It's yours to do. And uh, I'm, I'm at risk of making all sorts of uh, historical faux pas, but I, I've just gone through the mourning of the Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Right? It was mm. deeply emotional for me and for a lot of Britons too. Because even though I'm American citizen, I'm, I'm also deeply British to my soul. So uh, when the Queen died, uh, an era passed, the Elizabethan era passed. Now we're in the Carolean dynasty, the, the era, and we're not quite sure what that means. We, we've got a king who was sworn to do what his mother did, which is to be a servant, right? And, and what I keep seeing, and I'm going to write a blog about this at some point, that Augustus, in a sense, is the analogue with the Queen. Right? There's somebody who had to adapt to all sorts of really, in mean, the Second World War, and all the things of the, the changing of Britain in the in the world and becoming not an empire anymore and become a commonwealth and a, you know trying to fit within the world and becoming with the European Union and then Brexit and all this sort of stuff and always she was this sort of figure of stability whatever it was in Parliament she was this figure that was above this in a way Augustus was that figure he was sort of representing more and more under me there is no civil war under me there is prosperity. Peace comes from the fact that my armies are winning victories on the on the, and we're bringing wealth into it, so it's good. And he goes, and then this other guy, who's a little bit awkward, I've got to be very careful now, a little bit awkward, um, who's in his 50s. Tiberius is in his 50s when he takes over, so it's kind of interesting. Yeah. So, so, so Agrippa dies at 51, and in his 50s, Tiberius now takes over the project. And his 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 instinct is... I've been given my marching orders. I'll do my best. I don't want the job. I don't like the job, but I have been given an order and I will carry it out. Mm. And what he tries to do is, in a sense, to hearken back to an older version of the Republic, to say, I will work mm. with the Senate. I will treat the Senate with respect. Um, and if we can just make this thing work where I don't have to micromanage it, it will be fine. And whereas Agrippa and Augustus would flip-flop around the empire and travel a lot, Tiberius doesn't do any of that. He is the stay-at-home, eventually stay-at-Capri ruler. And that's where the rumors of sexual endeavors to prostitutes people arise are saying, and what killing senators, etc. Yeah, people are asking the question, what the heck is he doing? He's got 11 palaces, what well, was all that about, right? 
Well, he is a little bit reclusive. He's a bit of the Howard Hughes character in, in, in mm-hmm. sort of way. But I think what he's he's kind of convinced himself, and in the meantime, he's got Sejanus, Ilya Sejanus, we say Sejanus in English. Um, he's got him as another military man who says, don't worry, Caesar, I will, I will run it for you. And of course, he's kind of suckered in. And for about 14, 15 yeah. years, Sejanus runs things until he gets a little bit greedy, right? And then things go highly off the rails. And now, of course, Tiberius is into his seventh decade of life. What's absolutely intriguing is we all tend to think about Tiberius as being the sort of the, not the most popular choice from Augustus, but he had those because there weren't any more options at that point. And he sort of, sort of like was substandard and second rate. But you know what? Augustus, I think, was the longest running Roman ruler. I forget who the next one. He was like the third longest running Roman ruler. And um, Marcus Aurelius, perhaps? Could not well sure. be. Could, I'm could not well quite be. sure. I don't think my worth it, but I'm yeah. matching so. But what's interesting, he's in the top three, right? So he, mm. he actually was around for a very long time. And what's at and this is where I, I've, I've written the last paragraphs of my book, and I'm, as I'm working backwards from some of these things as I develop my thesis, is that um, he had decided that he didn't like being in the public gaze. His way was to get out of the theatre and stay at home, right? Augustus mm. understood that to rule well, You've got to be in the theatre and participating, not necessarily in the play, but you certainly have to applaud for things because you're one of the crowd and you win respect right? by, by providing the entertainment. Uh, Tiberius didn't really build a lot of temples, didn't build any big famous buildings, really. The famous Temple of Castor is basically a precaution. Because of a mediocre imperator, in a sense. Well, I, well I, I'm careful about the use of mediocre. I, I think his, his thesis was different. It, to me, it indicates an individual... And like Agrippa and Augustus who said, we must, we must be out in the crowd, we must be giving away stuff, we must build mm. things, they must see us. Tiberius's mission is to keep it going. And the way he does, he says, is the cog still going? Yes. Okay, good. I don't need to interfere. And the difficulty mm. is... is he's kind of an, point, you can tell he's kind of an introverted person, in a sense. I, yeah, and, and and I even wonder whether there's a certain element of depression that plays in this, and I explore some of these things in my forthcoming. Mm. There's no hint in Agrippa of that. I mean, Agrippa has... And he doesn't care about health. bringing his wife back from exile either. Uh, that's right. That's right. Well, that you know, so so that's a whole different podcast. We could continue to... Oh, but yeah. what I wanted to make the point was that um, it's just interesting to me that, that Agrippa had effectively set the role model for the, for the close advisor, um, it's interesting, in, in one of the German books I bought, uh, he's described as the co-regent. That's a wrong way to think about it because it's, it's, it's not a regal rule. The, the, the whole setup is, is so potentially uh, fragile. I mean, if, if somebody brought an army together, could rally Augustus's army and threaten him, I, I don't know whether it necessarily would have survived. That The amazing thing is that nobody ever tried it. Mm-hmm. And Agrippa, who could have been the man to try it, didn't. And I Mm. think what it meant was simply this, is that he found in someone he genuinely loved in a a sort of uh, filial way, brotherly way. And he was able to get things done in his life by being a friend that he didn't need to do it by being the ruler. Mm. And it's something Sorry about we got the the, the, the derailed there. So, but so we have to talk about this. And uh, sorry for interrupting you there, but Agrippa's death was quite devastating for when he got sick. It, it got quite devastating for Augustus because he wasn't there at at just Agrippa's 
time and he rushed us. I never came to see his friend in the last moment. So it, what was it? Must have been quite impactful for Justice watching his friend so, not so being the there for him. Is, so in the winter of thirteen twelve BC, uh, that there's there's news arriving that in Pannonia, well, that's kind of along the, the province of the service along the the, the the Adriatic coast going up towards the uh, Danube River that there is trouble. And um, Agrippa, who by that time actually hasn't gone to war for about a decade, and he's 50 by now. Uh, And in in Roman terms, that's not terribly old, but it is, you know, it's a mature age. Um, And off he goes, right? He goes off at the, normally the campaign season is from the spring to the autumn, fall. But now he's going in the winter. And, you know, it can get cold. And if you get damp, it's hard, you can get pneumonia. And I suspect that may be what he got. So he goes there and, and the word goes before him, Agrippa's on the way. And in fact, the Pannonians settle their scores with the Romans and they actually don't have the war. So effectively, Agrippa goes there, stays a few months, turns around, comes back. And now he's sick. And we don't know what that sickness is. And he eventually goes not to Rome, but to his villa. And I forget where that villa is, but it, I think it's in Campania. And, and he had lots of villas all over the place. There's even suggestion that one survives on the uh, Transtevere in, 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 in Rome itself with some original artwork. I, I think it's the, the villa he actually went to was in the Boscoriali area, uh, near, not very far away from Pompeii. And all we know is that he dies. We don't know when. And it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. So the crucial things about Augusta, Agrippa, we don't know. We don't know when he was born exactly. It could have been 63 or 64 or even 62. We don't know. All we know is that he died in his 52nd, I think, year. Because the Romans had a dating system, which is, you know, that they, wherever your birthday fell, they would know that, that 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 date would be your next year. But in fact, you weren't that age yet, if you follow where that goes. So it's really hard to know. So we don't know when exactly he was born or where, and exactly when he died. So it's, it's, it's a, for someone so important, these missing pieces, we know exactly where Augustus was born, exactly what day of the month, year, and also the death on those. So what that tells you is the narrative was structured that you weren't supposed to know a lot about Agrippa, but the story was always about Augustus. So Augustus is apparently at a festival. I think it's the Panathenaea festival. And there's some argument whether that actually meant he was in Rome in a Panathenaea festival there or whether he was actually in Athens. It's not quite clear what, what the score is. But you can imagine adjutants because you can imagine that you know Agrippa has a staff, right? Mm. And someone must have said, "You need to get word. Here's the message." And they bolt across and cross it, Adriatic and go to Greece. And the message, he drops everything. He comes back, and of course, this is like a two-week journey there and back. So um, the story is, is that by the time Augustus gets there, his friend has already died, and of course, you can only imagine what that's like. Mm. And I have to tell you, what's what's fascinating that when I actually wrote that part of the book. Um, it was it was extraordinary. The feeling I had was I'd actually had a friend and I'd lost a friend. Th- this man in this book had become part of what I was doing. And then suddenly I write, Agrippa died. And it was like, this man died. I can you know, choke up even now thinking about it. And I wrote this in um, Twitter and Tom Holland, the historian, actually said, I, I get that. that. That's happened to him when he's written about historical figures too. And in a sense, what happens when you write and research people, they live in your head and then you kill them off. And it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a really, really strange thing because then you go through their funeral. Imagine well. how George R. R. Martin must feel. <laughs> he's killing people left, right, and center. You know? yeah. <laughs> I sometimes wonder whether he's a sadist because he just seems to take it up. Mm. No, I care about the people I write. Mm. I get to care about them very much. 
um, because um, you understand the context of their times, the challenges that they had to live through and the decisions they made, not always the best decisions. That was the best they could come up with. Yeah. Uh, and they lived for Agrippa lived a particularly full life. It, it's extraordinary what he did and where he was and all the people. He, he met all the famous people of his day, uh, you, you could argue. And then what the, as an indication of how important Augustus this was, he actually had basically a state funeral. So all the people who've seen the Queen's funeral will understand this. So they carry the body of Agrippa from his place. I think it was actually Boscoriello, that, that area Campania. And as they, 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 they carry this body and it's on a, on a wheeled hearse, and of course the body has to be treated, prepared a little way, otherwise it'll be completely decomposed by the time it's going to take week, two weeks. It goes through the city and the, and the senior officials take the, the coffin, they carry it through this because they want to be part of this. They're wearing their black togas and they want to be part of this, this great commemoration and eventually the body is brought to rome and it's kind of laid in state and then they have the great state funeral and then they have the cremation of it intriguingly agrippa had already built his own mausoleum a little small one but he built one excuse me i've got a thing saying spam risk all right kill that. um thanks to apple and you now tell me it's a spam risk <laughs> <laughs> So, so in fact, that Augustus insists that no, he will be bought. He will actually be cremated in his own uh, crematorium called Ostrinum, mm-hmm. and then the body will be buried in the mausoleum of Augustus, which has now actually been renovated to some degree and is now available for the public. And he joined a number of people. Already. There was Marcellus. There was uh, Nero Claudius Drusus. There was Oct- there was Octavia, his sister. There was Antonia. Mino, the wife, uh, no, she wasn't, she was still alive at that point, she does much later. So there was this growing number of urns of famous, notable uh, Romans. They're insistent on talking to me, aren't they? Um, and, and that's where the life of Marcus Agrippa ends. And yet he left a legacy. He left a working plumbing system in, in Rome. And all the organization that he set up in the will was handed over to Augustus to manage. Uh, immense wealth, all the things like the parks and the rest that they were basically handed over to Augustus and the public was able to continue to use those. And um, and as you told me earlier, I mean, the, the, there were families in Europe at that time in Judea who said, we honour him by actually adopting his name. Mm. And it's interesting that there are inscriptions where members of um, Agrippa's household, they would free the slaves and they adopted the name with Sanius Agrippa as as they so they carried on the name uh even though they were now freed people they were not blood relatives and so you can imagine there was a group of people in the first century ad that were proudly carrying the name of this great man whose sort of legend grew and and, and augustus gives a funeral speech um at the oration and actually there's a there's a piece of a document which survives fragments where basically augustus lauds his virtues you know this such great a man, when comes another such as he kind of language. Um, and it was very evident that a lot of the Senate begrudged this man Agrippa. A lot of the people wouldn't show up in a mean-spirited sense because they felt Augustus had favoured this man with the humble beginnings over them um, and yet had displayed all the virtues of courage and uh, loyalty to the Roman ideal and all these sorts of things which in a way they aspired themselves and yet had not demonstrated. And at the end, what you get is a very um, rich story of an individual who devoted his life to the service of his people. And, um, and, and for me, the, the significant, I end the book on this note, 
is it's it's, it's very very fitting that the the most complete Roman building is the one that has Marcus Agrippa's name on it. Hmm. Something something that we haven't mentioned yet, and you talked about HBO Rome and how it's portrayed there in the show, but. We we don't really have well we have statues of Agrippa to Sovichian and you have some photos in the book as well of this. Mm-hmm. But we don't really have a description of what it may have actually looked like, what hair colour he has or but what he actually may have what eye colour he had, for, for example. He, or and he did write memoirs as well that is completely gone. So it must be fr- frustrating for you writing this that the memoirs are gone, uh, must, well, it must is. It. It, it really is. But you know what? For anybody who studies ancient history, welcome to our world. I mean, that is how it is for, you know, whole aspects of people's lives. I mean, you'll get, for example, just outline descriptions of an event. And you have no idea who was there or what the particular reason for it was or whether there's anything special about that. And in the case of Agrippa, we have these images of him, ironically, that seem to have been either minted under Tiberius or Caligula, and there's a there's a big I think it's a Dupontius or a Sestertius I think it's a Dupontius, which has this very very distinct profile, these thick eyebrows, this head of hair, this kind of thick features. I mean, you get the impression that this man was impressive, um, but like you've just said, we have no idea what hair color, his eye color, how he spoke. Uh, we we have an idea that his oratorical skill was of a very high order. Um, I think Pliny the Elder writes about how he delivered a speech which even when he was arrived, the original survived and people were, were very impressed by this speech. Mm. So this kid that had come from a, a little town in Italy somewhere and studied in the forum with a, with a Greek tutor actually learned how to speak By well a coincidence, actually... meeting now Justice of becoming one of the greatest men of the era. Yeah. So, so you know, it, it, it's very hard not to admire and actually fall in love with this wonderful mm. Fold out a human being. You do have some examples here. I want to show, in, and again, I don't know how well you can see it. It's through Zoom, not live, unfortunately. But yeah. Yeah. here you have some examples of what he yeah. may have looked like as statues on the first page of the where you and, have and, photos. And there you go, and that's the... Augustus to the right. And the... yeah. So what you'll see there is that none of them look the same. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So this is another problem that you have, is, and it's it's the same with the emperor. I mean, that's the case with the Caesar as well, though, and others, yes. uh, Augustus as well. None of the statues really look the same. So, like, and we talked about this before as well on this podcast. Like, if you travel back to ancient Rome, you, you're not necessarily certain that you would recognize, oh, there's Caesar, or oh, there's Agrippa that's walking down the street over there. Mm-hmm. It, it wouldn't be like that. You wouldn't, just because you've seen the statues doesn't necessarily mean you would be able to recognize them if you travel back to Rome. Well, so, so let, me th- let me float this idea to you. So Roman portraiture was, from what we can see from the Republic side, so let's say 2nd century BC, 1st century BC, was remarkably realistic. Warts, you know, furrows in their foreheads and so on. And, and, and these are really intense. I mean, they're, they're, they're the complete opposite of Greek ones. And the Greek ones tend to want to idealize a Pericles or a Themistocles. And the wait Romans a minute, Caesar want... doesn't have arms. He doesn't have that on the statue. <laughs> <laughs> so Augustus seems to try something slightly different. Um, and the Augustus Supreme Porter, that famous speech of him with the arm outstretched and yeah. apparently carrying some kind of Spear. I actually yeah. think he's carrying a, a Roman standard eagle, but that's another story. Um, he sort of creates an ideal look, mm. and what's fascinating is the look appears on the coins, 
it's always a full head of hair. It's this very straight nose. Mm. There are no there are no furrows in the in the forehead. And, and, and even when he's yeah. in his seventies, he doesn't look a day older, right? So what, what that tells you is then, and Mary Beard explains this in many of her great lectures, is that he, he that the people in his family have to somehow look a bit like him. Hmm. So the sculptors are sort of, in a sense, given an instruction. Well, we'd like you to have this kind of hair because that will make him look closer to Augustus. They're trying to yeah. make a family out of people who are actually not related by blood, which is a bit awkward, right? So Tiberius is not related by blood because he's, in fact, his, hmm. uh, his stepson. But but you look at those and people will go, oh, they kind of all, they must, that must be Carson Lucas because, you know, he looks like that. That's by design. We didn't, we didn't have cameras on the, on the, on the back no. then. There was no even no. black and white cameras. So we didn't no. like. But I think if, you, if you're walking around the forum, the, the things that would strike you would be, I mean, some of these personalities, for example, if they were in office, were entitled to lick doors. So the first thing you'd probably hear would be the stamp of feet carrying the fast gaze, right? Because mm. Augustus could, I think, have, could he have 16 or was it 12? I can't, I can't remember. Remember. Agrippa could have the same number. So he's surrounded by this official bodyguard and there's going to be followers, right? Because that's one yeah. of the things you have. He's the patron, he's got followers. And he might be in a litter. Um, he's, he may be walking, but because he hadn't got very far to walk because he was coming from the Palatine Hill. But the point is, you're never alone. You're always surrounded by people, yeah. right? Um, so, so you would actually auto- automatically, some go, oh, it's Augustus. You know, they'd bow respectfully or whatever they yeah. would do. Or actually say, uh, Caesar, I have a petition. Would you please, please consider my petition? Um, and, and in the statuary, which is disseminated across the Roman Empire, what they're trying to sort of make is connect people with the center of where power is. Yeah. And it's, it's in statuary, in the official buildings, it's on the coins. And what Augustus really does a great job of doing in his reign, started by Julius Caesar, is put his portraits on everything, mm. right? And it's really only the set. So Julius Caesar sets this unprecedented idea of a living person has an mm. image on the coins which are in people's hands. And, and again, Augustus, like you, you mentioned the facial structure and the like Caligula, when he, he yeah. started getting bald eventually later in his life and you wouldn't show that on the coin would you that wouldn't look very huh. very well you would show his eternal youth that he's eternal he's divine he's he's the ruler of the roman respublica so, so you example, wouldn't show that I, he has his balding losing his hair do would you yeah so this is this is a denarius of uh, tiberius right mm. and unlike augustus who had lots and lots of things on the back of the coin hardly any changes this is the image that appears on nearly every single coin of Tiberius all of the time. We think it's we think it's Vesta, it may be Livia. That's it. That's that's it. And all he's basically appealing to is that I'm I'm the head of the state. Basically, that's what he's what he's saying. Augustus uses uses coins to message. And as we're talking about Agrippa, Agrippa's face never appears on any coins under Augustus. That's by design because the regime is actually Augustus' regime. There are a couple of coins where uh, there is apparently on the rostrum, which is the speaker's platform in Rome, there are two togged figures. And we assume that it's Augustus and Agrippa as consuls sitting here together, but you'd never be able to see Again, I'm going to try to find coins that you show in the um, example here. So, so again, the messaging seems to be it's about Augustus all of the time. And Agrippa is the dutiful servant in that. But the way Agrippa's personality is, he doesn't resent that. 
So, so to, to throw in this in, um, you'll have read, wouldn't oh, you? But here, um, here we go, Rodian. If you see, if you are watching on YouTube, if you watch this far of the podcast, yeah. this is what yeah. you can see. So there's two phases, um, and, and that's that's one of the rare instances. And if you could just drop it down a little bit, there yeah. you've got a head of Augustus oh, on the one yeah. side, on the left hand side, and on the right hand side there is a is Agrippa wearing this really, really. Yeah, here we go, the, yeah. the next row down, next row down, where your fingers. The next one down. If you point to that coin there, this one there, the one yeah. Yeah, the one next to it. Oh, yeah, middle. That yeah. one there, right. So Agrippa is wearing a Rostal crown, and he was given that because he, went, he won the, the battles at Milan Nalocus. He was authorised to walk around with this crown, which had the assumption is it's, it's because he had besieged cities and he'd won a naval battle, and that, that thing sticking out the front is a rostrum, the ram on the front of a ship, right? So he yeah. was given those honours. What was intriguing is that he actually won two triumphs, and the triumph was the ultimate expression of Roman victory of a general. It was the thing you aspire to, is that that great parade, uh, the Roman mm. ticketate parade, and Agrippa refused them. Mm. He refused them. This was unheard of. And I think part of it is, is that in his way of looking at it is, if he had that, it would deflect from Augustus, who was really supposedly the winner of the wars, right? And it was, you can almost imagine the conversations, um, I'm going to give you a triumph. Oh, well, of course, I, I will refuse, uh, my, my dear friend. And, and like you said, in the, almost in the very beginning of this podcast, he was humble. It was humility, right? Yeah, but I think, but I think it, was, it was done with, with a very smart, shrewd eye to the optics of the political side of these things. And, and I think also... How can I put it this way? I, I almost imagine he would he would he would say something like this, which is, "You're a good friend to me. I've done very well out of this, and I don't need the trappings of greatness because I already have them by being your friend." And that might sound corny to a sort of a, a modern sensibility, but I think that's the closest you can get to understanding this man Agrippa. He he doesn't need to show off, apart from wearing this this crown and having a blue pennant on his ship, which is pretty showy, if you admit, right? Yeah. I mean, people understood that he was important. He didn't need to have a title to tell people that. And what mattered to him was the trust and the friendship. And again, Augustus as well turns down loads of titles that he is almost 90% of the titles that he is offered, basically. Yeah. Yeah, the, the only difference... Is, oh, yeah, I want, I want this title, I want that title, I want that one, yeah. I want that title. Yeah, so... so as somebody pointed out to me, there was no job description for princeps or, or emperor, as we now say, mm. right? What it was, was an accumulation of things. It was having the tribunician power. It was um, being sort of consul at many times. It was sort of being praetor many times. Um, and having like the princeps senatus being the, like, the number one uh, in the Senate. And what he had was this, there's this concept of autoritas, it's, it's influence, it's authority, and that comes from deeds, the things that you do, the consistency that you do them. And Augustus had that in spades. He got the name of Julius Caesar. He had actually won two civil wars, um, and he'd done all these great things. And Agrippa was the enabler in all of that. So he had Toritas too, but he didn't have the name, right? So he had all the other stuff. And um, had Augustus died, I mean, there was speculation that, you know, uh, Agrippa would take over, but a man, he was the same age. They were, they were maybe six months apart in age. Mm. So he wasn't obviously a successor, right, in the way that Tiberius was, because he was a man only like in his 30s. Mm. 
so he still had some lifetime. And by the time Tiberius gets to be emperor, he's in his 50s now. So, you know, mm. he's, he's a bit more mature. But um, you've, you've got to remember, and this is what I keep talking what, what Augustus and Agrippa put together was an experiment, mm. right? And, and, and it, was, it was never quite clear that it would always work. There were assassination attempts on both Agrippa and Augustus. They survived those attempts. Um, Augustus had to have a sort of a bodyguard. He had a couple of in, uh, special agents that would go out rooting out for plots and this sort of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, there were pe- people constantly asking them for things, and they had to make the calculus as to whether they agreed or they didn't. By and large, you know, they, they expressed themselves with their buildings and their good deeds and waging wars and doing all of this sort of stuff. Um, but, but you know, by the, by the time Augustus is, is dying and handing over to Tiberius, it's never been done before. They, they don't quite know whether this is going to work. Mm. And uh, I, I think it's a mistake if people seem to think it's, it's very solid and well-tested and so on. It's not. And, and Barrett's right. Anthony Barrett's is right. It's, it's really only t- by the time you've lived through Tiberius and Claudius that you get to this imperial ruler, right, mm. with jewels and rich gowns and all this sort of autocracy. Mm. Because Tiberius tried to rule with the accord of the Senate. Ty- Claudius tried to in- bring better government to it, knowing that, in fact, it had need for reformations and tweaks. And he seemed to have been a natural-born administrator. The, the, the problem with Caligula was he, he just... I don't know. It's again, we're dealing with the sources, right? The sources didn't have the greatest upbringing, to put it that way, either. Well, and, and that's tragic. But on the other hand, um, he was immensely popular. People forget he was immensely, immensely popular. One of people, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we, we keep on thinking in Roman history, in a sense, because it's written to us by the senators. Okay, we don't have Roman histories written by the people. Mm, yeah. His view might have been very different. So I think you have to also keep that in mind. And um, Agrippa was one of those people that was not senatorial. And that's why I said to you earlier that uh, when he died, there was a great hostility um, that the people literally, are you going to the funeral? Why would I go to the funeral? He's not a senator. He's not worthy of a presence. And, and, And Augustus, you can only imagine, would have been deeply insulted by that. Deeply insulted by that. Uh, and in his own sort of way, he would have got his own back, I'm sure. Uh, but already, you know, he, he's looking. So Augustus has a. What's amazing is um, Agrippa dies at 51 in 12, and the, Augustus goes on till 14. He goes on for quite a number of years yet, but he's getting older. He's in his 70s by the time he dies. He's ruled for about 44, 45 years. Um, and for 30 of those, 40 of those, he was always accompanied by Agrippa. And your point that the word used was bereft. I don't know what that feels when you've lost somebody like that. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming on. And uh, if you want to learn more about Agrippa, you should absolutely read the book. It's a super fascinating read. And if, you, if people want to do want to buy your book, Chassis, and listen to the podcast, you absolutely should. Where can they find both Germanicus or and Agrippa if, or and Barcroba and, and other works that you've written? If they if they would be interested in looking so, up more of so your the, work, I'm lucky that my publisher is called Pen and Sword up in Barnsley, Yorkshire, and they have distribution in all the major book outlets. So if you can't find the book on the shelf, you could order it from your bookstore. I support independent bookstores. Uh, as well as the big chains, but you can, of course, buy it on some famous 
online stores where it's on, in stock most of the time, and ebook version and Kindle book versions are available too. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. To, do you have anything else to you wish that before you go that, that you wanted to put in the description, social media that people might find you? Um, I, I on on Twitter I'm at Lindsay underscore Powell, um, and what I try to do on there is comment on on things that like new discoveries in archaeology, uh, put on things which uh, which other people have done like like re- reconstructions of things. I try to celebrate the anniversaries of the people I've written about. So you know I just recently did a whole thing on the Battle of Actium, which was was topical when it, when we had second of September. Um, I'm also available on um, Facebook. You can you can dig around and find me on there. Uh, where I rather more me, the, the the writer rather than the historian, and um, you know, get involved. I, I think uh, go go learn history. Uh, you know, a lot of people start their interest in history through fiction. Uh, what I say is enjoy the fiction, understand it is fiction, and go read the nonfiction. It um, th- there was a, there was an American historian who uh, lamented the fact that people who write about factual deeds are forced to use the negative. We talk ourselves about nonfiction. And what we need is another word to, exp- to explain. I'm a non-fictional. I don't write novels. They're hard for me to write, but I can write non-fiction. I actually find it really hard. So I, I champion the fact that people can write non-fiction. But try and get to understand how history is made, how somebody like me that writes a, a biography has to wrestle with facts. If I, if I use the word alternative facts, because ancient history is filled with alternative facts, things that don't seem to go together. And, and what we try to do is make sense of it all. We're trying to capture the past and make sense of it by using the material we have. And every historian interprets it anew in their own way. And I hope that in my books, people like what I've written. Uh, mine is never the last word, let me say. I mean, I've, read, I've written a book on Marcus Agrippa, which I hope will stand for the, you know, a century or something, uh, because the one that was before that was 1937. Mine came out around about two, 2011. Um, so I hope it'll be around at least for my lifetime, and hopefully beyond, and the other ones I write in the same way. But uh, history is changing all the time. I'm hoping that one day, just one day, someone will find in one of the great villas in Pompeii a copy of the memoirs of Marcus Agrippa, because I would love to read mm-hmm. it. <laughs> how, I wonder, how much did I get right? I would love to know. Mm. So so we are available, this is people that age 12, we are available on Instagram, and you can find us on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, wherever you can find podcasts these days. If you are on the Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving a review. That would help us a lot, lot. Let us know what you think. Please like, share, and subscribe. And I'll see you next time.